God forbid that I should live an emperor without an empire. As my city falls, I will fall with it. <laughs> Another quote from uh, Sipping Time. Um, so, I mean, any guesses who said that? Sounds like someone important. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, kind of a running, a running, uh, running name. Of the quotes, isn't it? Not not the right one that we talked about before, but it is a running name. Um, who is it? Constantine the Eleventh, oh. the final <laughs> emperor of the uh, Eastern Roman Empire. Why I said a running name because we talk about Constantine a lot. It seems like in every episode. Yeah, I nowadays. think every episode we do has a Constantine in it for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and while we're while we're talking about old names. Um, We've got a, a new name to the podcast, but uh, old old to me and Adrian, which is um, Jonas. Who uh, so you know for listeners that don't know, um, Adrian and I went to school together, and uh, Jonas was at the same school. So, and, <laughs> so we, we all went to school together, basically. Um, yeah, and um, I'll let you. I mean, I was going to say that you know you have a very big interest in in history, Jonas. Uh, and um, yeah, would you like to introduce yourself? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, first of all, I'd like to say a massive thanks for, you know, having me on the podcast. I mean, oh, no I, <laughs> I, I've made a recent attempt of, like, listening to the podcast over the last couple of weeks and I absolutely love what you guys do. Very, very kind of you. Remedy <laughs> after a long day at work, you know, just being in the shower, watching you guys, like, you know, talk for well, hours. Like, we're in the shower with you. I don't know how I feel about that, yeah. Yeah. I don't know about the viewership here, but let's keep things PG in it. But, um, yeah, yeah, no, let's just... All I'm just going to say is I'm a massive fan of the podcast. Um, yeah, I, I love you. what you guys do. And, um, yeah, when you guys <laughs> offered me a chance to be here, I couldn't say no, basically. So, um, yeah, it's going to be a great conversation. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we're excited to have you, man. It's been like really, really hyped to to chat to you um, yeah. and to okay. yeah to joke around and yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think what's so great about this is like this whole setup is like I feel like we've been doing this for the longest time. I feel like when we were in school, we were always yeah. you know talking and philosophizing about pretty much everything, really, isn't it? So the chance to you know talk about our favorite historical periods and whatnot, like you know how how can one say no, man? It's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna be good. <laughs> Should be just like old times, literally. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Should be should be super nice. Um, and so, I mean, this this week's topic is actually your idea as well, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, empires. I've I've always felt like you know, in history, whenever we talk about great men, you know, pivotal moments, that oftentimes there is often we often always are referring to some form of an empire, basically. And the fact that, you know, empires, not just a moment in history, basically, these are things that have continual real world, you know, legacies and repercussions. And, you know, a lot of the things that we are living through in terms of today's international environment, you know, the geopolitics are often informed by empires. So I think this could be the making of, you know, a really good and, you know, really stimulating discussion. So, yeah, man, let's tackle, you know, the ever the ever-changing world of empires, basically. <laughs> that that's, that's a great introduction, man. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, so we'll be covering today um, the the Eastern Roman and then, coincidentally, the, the, the Ottoman Empire. So, so kind of, kind of <laughs> accident, this has become a, um, a history of 
empires in, in Anatolia, basically. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. So uh, you've been. Well, I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you start, Adrian, with. Uh, well, your, your musings first, on the fall of Constantinople. Uh, um, Oh, oh, of yes, course, well, yeah, sorry. Yeah. First thing is first. <laughs> um, why don't we ask, uh, well, why don't we tell each other what we're all drinking this this fine evening? Yeah. Uh, what are we <laughs> together. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I'm, um, I'm drinking yeah. the same as last week, the Singleton. Oh, my um, God. Nice little, little whiskey here. Um, yeah, it's very nice. It's very good. Okay. Still have a Manish again, Yabba Falls. It's... Uh, <laughs> really? Oh, it's eluding me, yeah, crazy. I had to get a refund now. I had to like order it again. Really? Oh, so, oh yeah, you said it got lost in the mail, yeah. Lost in the mail, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, for, for your for your benefit, Jonas, this this is a running <laughs> a running well, probably for the last two weeks. Um, there's like a new Welsh distillery called Abba Falls, and it's the yeah. second one to open, <laughs> and uh, it, it's so new it hasn't won any awards. So for the quality, it's really cheap. It's like twenty pounds. But I'm convinced after it wins awards, it's going to cost like fifty pounds, forty pounds like next year. <laughs> we're not getting sponsored for this. We're not getting paid. No, 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 no we're literally not months. getting sponsored. I wish. It's just <laughs> yeah. very good. This is really, really good. Like, so I would highly recommend getting it. I, I think it's currently twenty pounds on Amazon. If you can't get yeah. it, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I'm definitely not a connoisseur, but um, yeah, no, I'm definitely happy to do my research because it sounds like you guys very are. Good. You guys know what you're talking about, essentially. <laughs> Just just comes from drinking a lot of whiskey, basically. Yeah, <laughs> much. Um, we love to research. I mean, you know. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> um, um, yeah. So is that what you're drinking today, Sammy? No, actually, I'm. I'm uh, for the first time ever. I'm drinking the same one as last week, which is the <laughs> the, uh, uh, the Jameson's uh, IPA edition, um, which is you know it's it's uh, matured in IPA uh, casts, basically. So very it tastes cool. it tastes very whiskey like but it's still quite nice <laughs> <laughs> and jonas what are you drinking <laughs> now this is going to sound like a cop-out guys because um <laughs> I'm, definitely, all, I mean, I'm definitely not drinking something as you know as cult as cultured as what you guys are but i'm oh, actually no, mango no. juice because i've had quite a hectic cultured. weekend in terms of like you know yeah. being out on in social with my mates and whatnot so i yeah. thought i'd use the sunday just to sunday to, to scratch and have some much needed vitamin c so we are recording this on the sunday sainsbury's yeah. best of you know best of both apple and mango juice basically so um, yeah i know it's a disappointment but hey i'm trying, I, to, be, I'm trying to find a flag for healthy living out here <laughs> yeah, wow. you picked the wrong place for <laughs> yeah 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 don't worry the next episode i'm gonna come with like some jameson's you know some of the good stuff you know Ray and nephews. <laughs> yeah get some, get some from the 16th century <laughs> no i mean I, I remember mango was uh was a very popular drink uh like, especially the rubicon carton like at school. <laughs> so, oh. Yeah, so. <laughs> Bring back the era of the 39 KAs, man. 39 PKAs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pineapple one. That was my, my drink of choice. <laughs> yeah, so this will be very reminiscent, I'm sure. <laughs> Definitely. Um, uh, sweet. Well, we've got, the, we've got the beverage talk out the way. Um, let's take a super quick break here and then we jump back into uh, more, more Eastern Roman Empire talk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Welcome back. 
<laughs> I was waiting for you to say that actually. <laughs> yeah, there was a little bit of pause there, wasn't there? Sorry. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll edit it out. Nobody will know. So we'll start chronologically on this episode, as we yes. tend to do. Um, we do tend to, yeah. And we'll be talking about the fall of the Byzantine Empire, so the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, we talk about it a lot, actually. I think we <laughs> it's clearly like the most, oh, you have like a word cloud of this podcast, it would definitely come up the most, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, as with like yeah. Constantine. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> true. Um, so yeah, we'll be talking about that a little bit. So essentially, um, yeah, a bit of context, I suppose. Eastern mm -hmm. Roman Empire, Byzantine Empire, um, the commonly called the successor to the Roman Empire, not necessarily true. They considered themselves Roman. They called themselves um, Roman and stuff. So we have the... Uh, the it's the it, anyway. Yeah, it's, it's like, it doesn't help that they have all these different names and stuff too, right? And they were Greek, so they weren't Latin like the Romans. Um, but there eventually is like a shift towards Greek being the primary language from Latin. Um, the Obviously, the artistic style that we mentioned in our Arches series completely takes a new direction. Um, you've got plenty of mosaics, plenty of uh, arches, <laughs> plenty of like domed uh, ceilings. And uh, yeah, so kind of where we are here, when we're starting this episode is generally um, around the 11th century. So that's kind of where I've seen a general consensus that it's the beginning of the decline um, of the Eastern Roman Empire. So from this point, they're not really improving their, their things. They're kind of it's just all a bit downhill from there. It's, so it's a very long slow motion car crash, basically. Yeah, it's yeah. it's like they won't give up. They won't like, <laughs> like they won't call it quits. Um, so a big big part of that, obviously, the rise of Islam. So you have empires such as the Umayyads, the Abbasids. Then um, you also have the Seljuks, um, and later on you have the Ottomans. So plenty of uh, Islamic empires that um, you know rival them, kind of hit them at their frontiers in the east. Um, and we'll see that basically um, Anatolia, to me, I think, is the, the big kind of litmus test or the kind of big uh, kind of mm -hmm. stomping ground for, for all this, really, because it kind of all does come down to that with future emperors from the Eastern Roman Empire trying to get Anatolia back. They never get it back, basically, after a certain point. And um, it's quite like a, I think that's kind of like a signifier of, of where they are uh, in terms of military power. So mm -hmm. um, a very quick overview of this. So the Seljuks, originally from kind of uh, the Caucasus in between the um, the Caspian and Aral Seas, um, kind of a Turkic, uh, Muslim Turkic empire. They go into Persia, they go into Iraq, they go into eventually further west. Um, and they basically are the big guys on the block, right? The, the, the new guys on the block. And they basically use um, horseback archers as well, um, which is very important because we'll see that being used uh, quite critically in what's, what's the dating for this is this like the 1080s or when so yeah so the um seljuks started attacking the frontiers in armenia and syria mm -hmm. so ani and kars 1054 yeah. to like 1070 yeah. um so quite you know quite late on compared to where we were um mm -hmm. like with the rise of islam but um yeah. not necessarily that far after that right so uh That's you have the fatimids sorry about 300 years, isn't it, bit of a cap? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And already hugely influential, right? So you, you have the uh, Fatimids in the in the west of that, so in like Egypt and Syria. Um, and the Seljuks are quite um, occupied with getting Egypt from them, getting Syria from them. Mm -hmm. And um, 
they they also want to go into Anatolia and it's Turkey, a modern day Turkey, but they're more pretty they're more interested in getting into Egypt because it's which here it's you know Syria as well is very rich. Um, so what we see, um, and I guess I'm just jumping into it here. Um, and I, I, <laughs> I don't want to dwell because I realize I'm already dwelling, but you, no, you essentially no, no. have this this fundamentally um, this fundamental battle between the Byzantines um, and the um, Seljuks is the Battle of Manticat, and that basically happens in uh, eastern uh, the eastern kind of frontier of the Byzantine Empire. So it's after the um, Seljuks have taken um, Ani, and uh, which is in like Armenia today, in Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially, they they want to go in, right? And you have the emperor at the time, which is Romanus the Fourth Diogenes. Which any reference to Diogenes, I love yeah. because to me it's just the guy who like lives <laughs> in a barrel, right, and uh, calls himself a dog and stuff. But um, he's basically <laughs> the emperor at the time, and he leads the battle. He's a bit silly though, because he he doesn't do like enough reconnaissance. Okay. Um, <laughs> silly Billy. <laughs> um, he basically just goes in, he underestimates the Seljuks, and the um, the leader of the Seljuks at the time, Alp Arslan, uh, he essentially bypasses them, he attacks them from the north when they expect them from the south. Oh, and so yeah. what happens is they, they cut off the initial kind of uh, vanguard attack. Um, and because the Seljuks are mobile, uh, you know, mostly cavalry archers, yeah. they're very mobile, they're able to, to navigate really quickly. Um, apparently the Seljuks offered peace to Romanos, but he declined. He said he'd only sign a peace treaty in their, like, capital. Uh, <laughs> was that, um, where was that at the time? I can't remember. I don't remember now. I think it was in Persia at the time, though, but it, it could have been moved further for the West by then. Um, but Same I suppose you can get up. Good to fact check that, definitely. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in any case he, he seems like a very like um very kind of nice guy like he's he's he seems to treat his prisoners really well he offers peace multiple times when the romans don't offer peace um mm. and in general he seems like he's more pragmatic than the kind of hot-headed or kind of prideful uh, romanos um yeah yeah uh, yeah he's, so he's, got, romans- he's got less of this kind of weight of um like hubris, I guess, about, you know, being the descendant mm. of the Roman emperors. and um, Yeah, for, for sure. Yeah. But that's a huge thing, isn't it, for them? It's, yeah. it's a big part of their decline. I mean, really, it does come down to that because you, you, you get court politics and intrigue, mm. which is based upon this, like, pride and, and superiority. And I think we'll, we'll see how badly it goes in a little bit. But essentially, yeah. there is very much a pride of the continuity of the Roman Empire, right? Um, yeah, which, which makes sense psychologically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we talked about like the Hagia Sophia in the last epi- in the last few episodes yes. on arches, and how that was like beyond like reality. Like it was held up by a chain from heaven, and <laughs> how, like <laughs> Russians when they came from uh, Kiev and Rus to like check them out, like they couldn't believe that it was life. Right? They were like they thought they were heaven. real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I get that, you know, like reading that and thinking. I mean, I guess this goes to your point, Jonas, about empire today and how. You have that still as a point of pride, no? I mean, that's you know the, the Hagia Sophia very much so is, is a symbol of national pride um, among Greeks and Turkish, right? Um, yeah. And you know, there's so much dispute still in today. I mean, there's always the arguments between Greeks and, and Turkics, right? Like uh, about this, <laughs> but, and, you know, yeah, they, and many other topics as well. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting what you mentioned there about the Byzantines because I thought I, I think what I've always found quite interesting learning about the Byzantines is that there never seems to be a concrete, you know, consensus on when the sort of empire declined, but there does seem to be mm. this understanding that it was a really slow and gradual decline based that happened yeah. over, you know possibly hundreds of years because correct me if I'm wrong but wasn't the fall of Constantinople in the 1400s so yes. that literally yeah, is you know a culmination of like hundreds of years of like continued decline but um I think <laughs> from you know my from my own sort of research on the battle of Manzika I think what was interesting about that particular battle was the sort of understanding that it was just literally the Byzantine Empire just become very limited to Anatolia and it was that symbolic yeah. flow of they're no longer sort of like the protectors of Eastern Christianity, basically. Absolutely. So, uh, it does yeah. seem like a pivotal yeah. moment. I guess there's still that discussion whether it was the most pivotal moment, mm. but definitely if there's one sort of thing that summarizes, you know, the Byzantine is that sort of slow, really gradual decline, basically. And then you have the sort of battle of Constantinople. It's like, you know, the key moment, yeah. essentially, like, you know, the, the whole edifice comes crumbling down, literally. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, there's, uh, there's, there's almost a thousand years between the fall of Rome and the fall of Constantinople, isn't there? Like, that's, yeah. that's crazy. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, uh, definitely. I mean, I think, I think Mansica, you make a really good point there because it, it definitely is seen as yeah. um, like Byzantium is no longer capable of protecting Christianity in the East. And it, it does have a knock-on effect into the Crusades. Um, and it's, it's very much kind of mm. the world begins to see Constantinople or like the Byzantine Empire is no longer being that kind of final bulwark of Christianity. So what we see here is essentially this, they attack them. Um, they're, you know, because the thing is as well that I forgot to mention <laughs> already is that the Seljuks and the uh, Byzantines, they essentially have like a ceasefire at this point. So the, mm. the Byzantines, and I'm going to say Romans and Byzantines interchangeably. So, you know, I mean, I mean, lots of people do. I don't, I don't think you'll be yeah, it's quite cumbersome to say Byzantines all the time, you know. Yeah. Um, but they they essentially have a ceasefire because what's happening at this time? So we're talking um, Manzika is ten seventy one, right? So at this time we've got the we mentioned as well in the last episode on archers about the Norman invasion of Sicily, right? So yes. you have the Normans basically attacking the Balkans, which is under the rule of the Byzantines, right? Mm -hmm. So that's coming from the north west, basically of Constantinople. And um, that's kind of their primary problem. So they're trying to get like alliances with the Pope. They're trying to get like all kinds of deals going with the Franks and stuff and with the Germans um, or present-day Germans um, and marriages and things like this, just to try and get the Normans out of Sicily because they had land in Sicily, obviously. They had, um, you know, plenty of uh, places that have been basically overrun and they're getting attacked directly by the Normans. So the, Byzant the Byzantines are more concerned with what's happening in the West than they are with what's happening in the East at that present moment. Um, and it's due to many things, due to some attitudes by the emperors as well at the time, which we'll mm -hmm. talk about a little bit as well, as well. But that's kind of their focus, right? Whereas at the same time, the Seljuks more occupied with getting into Egypt than they are with getting into um, like Byzantine territory at the moment, mm -hmm. um, because they want to get into Alexandria, they want to get into kind of Egyptian um, lands getting into the sea, right? So they essentially have a ceasefire because they're like, you know, or like kind of a truce. They're like, we're not going to, we're going to focus on our things now. You do your thing, you do your thing, you know, we'll like meet back later. So while yeah. this is happening, and, and while um, we mentioned Alp Arslan, who is the head of the Seljuks at the time, while they're besieging uh, Aleppo, 
that's when the Byzantines attack at Mansica. So that's the point as well. And that's mm-hmm. when um, the Seljuks are like, damn, we need to go back. Um, and that's why they also managed to cut them off from a different angle because they expected them from the south, whereas they came from the north, which is you know, really interesting tactically. So the Romans had 50,000 Romans, uh, which consisted of Varangingard, which is, um, you know, it's kind of like the, the Nordic, the Norse kind of um, elite imperial yeah. guard. It's, it's very elite heavy infantry, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's, you know, seen as like the badass kind of like um, imperial guard. They had um, Turkic, Syrian, and European mercenaries. So a big thing as well leading to the decline is a reliance on mercenaries because they were expensive. They had differing allegiances. They also meant uh, destabilization of the politics that we'll see later on. Um, and they had feudal levies as well. Whereas the Seljuks only had 30,000, uh, which are mostly horse archers. And so the battle itself, they attacked in like a forward-facing crescent, which is quite common, I suppose, to encapsulate the enemy. Yeah. Um, Whereas the Romans tried to get a pitch battle, obviously, because they have more conventional uh, kind of army yes. set up. Obviously, what the Seljuks do is a hit and run tactic, right? The Parthian kind of um, yeah, like, like you know. every horse archer army like ever, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, it, it works. It works like ninety nine percent of the time, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. hit and run GTA style. Yeah, literally, yeah. How yeah. <laughs> to get Crassus in the end, you know? Yeah, <laughs> my boy Crassus. Could choose to set people's house on fire and charge them to put them out, like <laughs> uh, the original, like uh, capital. But um, yeah, so it makes sense, right? Hit and run, you know. Um, yeah. So their camp basically, they're, they're scattered and um, they're relying on a reserve force, uh, the Romans. And what happens is basically the reserve force doesn't arrive because the leader of the reserve force, Andronicus Docus, um, is feuding with the emperor's family. So it's, instead of helping him out in the battle, he goes off back to Constantinople. <laughs> And he basically usurps the throne. He becomes the emperor. <laughs> um, I mean, that's a terrible idea. Putting this guy like in charge of your reserve force. Yeah, surely, surely you would want someone. Like, you need their help, right? You want to be able to. <laughs> I mean, it's so bad because then he comes back. So Michael the Seventh is now the emperor, right? Um, instead of Romanos. So Romanos comes back defeated because. Romanus gets captured at the fa- at the battle, basically. Yes. Um, which you know, to capture an emperor is like the big, you know, <laughs> the creme de la creme. It's quite <laughs> rare throughout the history of Rome, isn't it? I mean, like yeah. the entire Roman Empire is very rare. It's so embarrassing, right? Like it's yeah. it's like sad. <laughs> it's pretty embarrassing. But yeah. The the Seljuks are very graceful with it. They they offer peace. They offer. Um, they apparently they treat him very well, like in in the captivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in return, they receive Antioch, Edessa, Hierapolis, and Mansakert. They receive one and a half million gold pieces payment and 360k gold pieces annually, which is pretty mad, right? That's like, (laughs) Um, and um, essentially, yeah, they, they denied the control of Anatolia because from that point onwards, it was kind of, you know, that, that became uh, kind of a sore spot for them. And of course, like Anatolia Mm -hmm. as well was a major recruiting ground for soldiers at the time. So they had a theme system in general. which meant that they would hire locally, um, kind of the, the soldiers and stuff. Um, it basically means that the, like, like you mentioned, Jonas earlier, like it's kind of debated how significant this battle was in the grand scheme of things with with the Byzantine kind of military power, but it definitely was a turning point, um, at least in morale and at least in like the Western thought towards the empire, right? Um, and it's I've seen that as being quite a direct um, response. Uh, 
or the Crusades being kind of a direct response to that, right? Where essentially the West started to see this as like, okay, we need to start attacking this because they're not really in control of this as we thought they were, right? Um, and we see that in the later on in the Fourth Crusade, which uh, yeah, I mean, in the, the Fourth Crusade, I mean, you could almost say that is the fall of Constantinople. Uh, Definitely, you can. And <laughs> you know? I was making that point actually. Yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah, okay, excellent. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. It definitely seems significant in terms of like the loss of the Byzantine sort of Anatolian heartland. And I always find that quite intriguing because I think studying history, you always sometimes, I think, especially when you study history, you know, with that sort of limited knowledge base, you sometimes think of like, you know, certain bits of the world as just always having been a certain way. And so, for example, Turkey, when you think of Anatolia, mm. you often think about, you know, the Ottoman and it being a predominantly like, you know, Muslim sort of land. But it's actually when you go back to that period, actually, um, actually Anatolia was quite the opposite in that it was a place with like a lot of, you know, heavy Christian influence due to sort of Byzantine period. And, you know, I think it's sometimes forgotten that like, you know, Christianity from its spread, you know, from, you know, Paul and uh, Paul and, you know, the sort of rise of organized Christianity that um, Anatolia was a huge part of that sort of expansion definitely, project. Definitely, and so definitely. I think it's definitely significant in the sense of like, Anatolia um, starting to fall to that sort of eastward, you know, um, expansion of like, you know, Muslim empires, which starts off with the Seljuks and then ultimately culminates in, you know, the Ottomans, you know, capturing Constantinople and whatnot. So it definitely mm. feels significant in terms of, you know, that loss of the Anatolian heartland of what yeah. was prior to, you know, the battle, quite a historically Christian place. And it eventually yeah. starting to, you know, become a lot more Islamicized, essentially. Definitely. Yeah, okay. definitely. I think they, they definitely felt that as a big loss and the, it, it doesn't get better for them after this, right? So, I mean, the, the, the Roman emperor comes back, he, he finds out he's been ousted, right? Not only this, he's then blinded and he dies, he dies like shortly after. That's, that's, that's a very common punishment, isn't it, for a deposed mm. emperor to be blinded or mutilated in some way? Yeah, because they're, yeah. no, they're no longer can like see, they're no longer can rule, isn't it? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's brutal. I mean, I, I don't like to think about that too much. It's uh, well, there's, there's all sorts of like noses being cut off, like ears yeah. cut off. Um, I think there's one emperor that comes back after. There is. After. Oh, yes. uh, oh are you going to talk about that? Okay. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah, I think um, his tongue is cut out and everything, and then uh, he manages to come back. Well, so, so well, before we get to that, right? That stay tuned for that. So basically, when when Romanos comes back. In, in the span of like 10 years, you see eight revolts, eight like popular revolts, um, which I guess oh, shows right. you how stable the empire was at that time. Um, yeah, that's pretty bad. Pretty bad, right? Like you've got so many vying families and politics in the courts and you've got you know, different factions uh, vying for power. Very common in, in large mm -hmm. empires. I mean, I don't know if anybody, if any of our listeners play Crusader Kings 3, but um, big fan of that <laughs> game. It's something yeah. you, you notice straight away when you play the game, you actually get an empire. You've got to keep your vassals happy and they always revolt against you, right? I mean, it's it's like a pain uh, completely trying to get them all happy. So It's fairly annoying, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm, I'm more of a total war guy myself, but um, yeah, uh, it's, it's a similar system as well in that um, yeah. if you don't keep the tribute flowing, then you start getting, you know, really disgruntled provincials and then it all starts going a bit, you know. It all kicks off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, shit hits the fan, basically, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really does. So luckily for them, right? So you then get some relative stability um, for about 100 years under the Komnenos dynasty, uh, which takes us to about 1180. So, so we're up to about 1180 now, right? Exactly, 1180, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, but it's then followed by the Angelos dynasty, which is like a disaster. I mean, this is like okay. a disaster. And yeah, actually, just, like, just, just quickly, right? So, um, I mean, so for the first, first and second crusades, mm-hmm. um, right? So, um, I, know, I know quite a few few people go by ship from mm. uh, Messina, right? So therefore, they don't they don't kind of go through uh, Byzantine lands and like ravage the land on the way right uh but but surely there are people that do do that yeah so the second crusade they actually go through constantinople and they there's like a whole power dynamic there right because they you get the westerners kind of looking down at them a little bit there's this whole like um, after the schism right yeah yeah there's a whole thing i mean so this actually happens on the manual the first komnenos right from the komnenos dynasty and he basically he's quite lauded so he's He's seen as the, um, and I'm going to butcher this, but Porfirientos, uh, uh, so born in the purple um, yeah. by the Greeks, uh, Omegas, so the greats, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, he's seen quite positively, but he's a sign of, of this actually. So um, he lost the war to the Normans, although he kind of yeah. reconquered some land. He also kind of saved space. Um, he tries to get alliances with the Pope. And I think at one point he even suggests like going under the provision of the Pope um in exchange oh, wow. for like the help against the normans and stuff oh my yeah <laughs> he tries to like ally with with the pope and stuff to get egypt um it doesn't go to plan and um he loses as well to the seljuks again um in the battle of Miriokephalon, which is also trying to reclaim anatolia and that's the final time they tried to reclaim anatolia well any real push towards reclaiming anatolia yes. because this kind of uh, Komnenos dynasty is the final kind of real resurgence in Byzantine power mm-hmm. and military. It's the last like good dynasty, isn't it? Really? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and his big problem is he's distracted by these like military adventures in Italy and Egypt, um, mm-hmm. and he kind of ignores Turks. And so this gives the Sultan many times to like eliminate rivals, consolidate power, build up a force, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, this is kind of why um, the Battle of Mediokephalon happens. And it's kind of uh, why the subjects really beat them so decisively. Because the army is in pretty good shape at that point. They're, they're doing okay, you know, like the Bible times, compared to what they were doing under Romulus. But as you mentioned, so the um, Crusades happened uh, during those times. And of course, the second, yeah, yeah it does come through. Um, he manages to navigate it quite well. Um, but um, I don't remember the exact ins and outs of it. But, um, yeah. There's, there's but, a whole... yeah but you're going to have people stealing sheep and (laughs) you know like uh like getting like random surprise taxes on the locals Uh, all this kind of nonsense you know like uh particularly with these like these huge numbers of people like coming from um Mm. france and germany right walking the whole way (laughs) and then you know like realizing you know seeing all these things like wow these people are much richer than i am like where i live um i want want some of their stuff basically right Um, (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah definitely i I mean it's it's really interesting isn't it so and so the second one goes okay um and there's generally like a mutual understanding between them um so he passes away um his and it's not it's not really that dodgy his circumstance of passing away which is like a surprise probably <laughs> oh that's that's good to hear yeah <laughs> his, his successor though i can't see the same thing for because his successor is alexios the oh. second komnenos um hmm. so the reign of this emperor is 1180 to 1183 um of which <laughs> of which they would have been 
10 years old until about 13 years old or 14 years old. Oh, on the what happened? Which is really rough. So basically, he's been under like a regency the whole time. And the regency oh, yeah. is like, you know, <laughs> not in his best interest, right? No. Um, <laughs> super messy. His cousin is trying to get the throne and the cousin does get the throne and the cousin is a oh, nightmare. Really? Um, he leads to like the massacre of the latins which is something we'll talk about and basically like it's a disaster yeah Yeah. um so speaking of the latins right this is a whole this is a whole thing actually so i mean so so that that, um, that just means uh, someone that's catholic basically right uh well it's it's uh italians basically Ah, okay, so, so it means, means Italians, okay, in this context, yeah. Yeah, so it's called the Massacre of the Latins, but yeah, essentially it's like, I guess Latins in, in their context is like non-Greeks, right, but from the yeah. West, but in this particular context, they mean Italians. So what happens basically, and this is a big factor in the fall of uh, Byzantium, is that um, the economy gets like completely messed up by uh, the Italian kind of city-states, right? So mm-hmm. you have um, Venice and you have Genoa, which are the big kind of players in uh, northern Italy, they, you know, they have their own empires, right? Um, and they have plenty of, uh, you know, commercial kind of maritime trade and stuff yeah. in the Aegean and in the Adriatic and the Mediterranean in general. Um, and so what happens is essentially the Venetians are very clever. They're very sneaky. Um, and they manage to get plenty of favor, um, as do the Genoan and the, the Pisans and stuff. And um, so, for example, um, the uh, Venetians, they help the um Byzant- the byzantines with uh the norman wars right uh, mm-hmm. and so in exchange they get given uh it's called the golden bull of uh what is it 1080 1082 or 10 yeah 1082 um which basically um they receive massive like trading concessions they allow venetians to trade in byzantium without taxes they allow control of the yeah. main harbor facilities in constantinople they get given like key offices um so oh, wow. they also I mean, get given their own district. That's, that's, that's interesting because um, we'll see similar things in the Ottoman Empire as well, actually. Ooh, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. History, what is it? History rhymes, right? History uh, rhymes. Um, yeah. So, so definitely. So, and this also happens with the Gen- Genovese, with the uh, Pisans as well. So they, it's really funny, actually, because my understanding of it is, right, they have these, like, districts in the city in Constantinople, and they're like, they're like street gangs. They're like, <laughs> they're like, well, I mean, it's not really funny, but it's funny to think of because they're like fighting each other in the streets. They're like raiding each other. They're like burning each other's like houses. Well, like each other's warehouses. Yeah. So like the Genovese and like the Venetians are like, oh, they're like, what? <laughs> That's mental. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> like, like street That's gangs, right? Um, but I'm imagining like the kind of like the, the musical kind of street gang for some reason, I'm imagining <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> a West Side not, Story not like, kind of like, uh, not like football hooligans or anything. No, no, like, they were like wearing like, like, you know, golden slippers and stuff, you know, uh, like, <laughs> and, and I'm sure they dress very well, but they're still like stabbing each other, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's um, interesting you mentioned the sort of, I think what, I think what that period definitely shows as well is the sort of real sense of infighting that you get between the two main Christian factions in the known world at the time, you know, especially oh, given the fact that, you know, the Crusades was always wrapped around that sort of language of sort of Christian solidarity. Yeah. I think it's quite interesting <laughs> yes. when you see that yeah. just with a lot of things when it comes, you know, alliances in sort of yeah. um, geopolitics and whatnot, it's always that idea of like, you know, rivalry and competition being the name of the game rather than actual outright solidarity. Yes. So I think it's quite interesting how, you know, a lot of that period and particularly a huge part of the Byzantine decline can also 
be attributed slightly towards that lack of Christian, it, like Christian solidarity from particularly, you know, the, the, the Western, yeah. you know, the, the Western Catholic tradition, basically. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a uh, there's a lot of self interest involved, isn't there? <laughs> in the crusade. Yeah, yeah. Famous, but, um, you know. It's... I mean, that's say, for example, that you know, the Islamic world was united either. I mean, there's True, definitely yeah, a lot of been yeah. fighting as yeah. well, but it's yeah, definitely yeah. significant to see how that lack of Christian unity definitely you can see the, the, the sort of role it played in terms of the further decay of the, the Byzantine Empire. Hundred percent. I mean, I love how like the Crusades are like, yeah, like if you if you die in the Crusades, you'll get like absolution for your sins and stuff. And it was like, okay, we gotta go. <laughs> Just like everything. yeah, I mean, it's, I I I think as well, you know, it helps when you think about like uh, the living conditions of uh, a peasant in like northern France and like yeah, like in in this period, uh, like are so grim. Like you, I mean, they they almost they literally almost had nothing to lose. Um, <laughs> it's it's a big part. Of, I think that explains why. Uh, people went and then you know and ending up in um this kind of like proto-colonialism of um mm. of palestine um you know that with it with all all of the um the things involved with that like economic exploitation and um cultural exclusion and um all, all the other bad things that come with colonialism yeah definitely definitely i mean it's it's, it's seen as like a complete othering and it's seen as a complete like power dynamic isn't it um Usually, yeah um, so the Venetians, we will go back to this yeah. in a big way, right? Uh, in a very big way. Um, and so you, you have these kind of uh, Latin uh, populations in Constantinople, right? Which is mm. described as like Italian kind of city states. Um, and they're giving massive concessions. And they're essentially, um, it, it comes to a point where they're basically uh, making the most money. They're the richest kind of faction in Constantinople. They're most of the trade and the kind of the, prestige is coming to them which obviously if you're an average kind of greek in constantinople doesn't probably you know appeal to you as, as the state of being isn't it and um you know yeah, it's, it's, it's hard it's, for you to amass wealth isn't it yeah absolutely and like you know they have an unfair advantage they're like yeah. i mean they're not paying taxes like they're they're given like control over things like you wouldn't get like it's it's ridiculous i mean there is a figure i have later on for this being even more ramped up but essentially it's it's really crazy um so this kind of basically happens where um it gets to a rising point basically and um there's like an expulsion there's like an imprisoning of phoenicians in the city in 1171 um destroyed the genoese quarter um and so the emperor like ordered like a mass arrest of phoenicians and stuff seized their mm -hmm. property also like some terrible crimes committed against them um and so the Venetians go to war with Byzantium, right? There's a war happening in 1171. And it's quite funny, though. So basically, the, it's, it's a big blunder for Venice, even though they couldn't really not go to war. Um, yeah. it, it fails really badly. So they, they tried, like, a direct assault, but it's impossible because the imperial forces are really strong. They also have crazy fortifications. I mean, you know, we'll talk about this, yeah. but obviously, it's yeah. <laughs> hard, hard to see, you know, in the siege. Um, so they, they chill um, at, like, an island they've taken, uh, Chios, and basically, it's really bad. So the Venetians agree to negotiations with the emperor, who uh, stalls, basically, throughout the winter. Um, there's an outbreak of plague, and he knows that there's an outbreak uh, of plague, and he yeah. keeps stalling negotiations, like, putting it off, until yeah. they're basically forced to withdraw. And the doge is, like... 
he is killed by a mass of like oh, wow. Venetians. Um, oh, well, so, so that's, that's the ruler of uh, the ruler of Venice, isn't it? The Doge. Yeah. 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 And um, so they're really angry with this. This is like seen as like a huge military blunder uh, for the yeah. Venetian kind of. It sounds pretty bad, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, but at the same time, it's like they have to kind of defend their citizens, right? Um, and so this is 1171. So we we mentioned Alexios Komnenos II. Yeah. Um, this is a bit of resurgence, isn't it? This their kind of relative power. You know, it, it, it's showing that declines aren't always, you know, yeah, like yeah. ski slope down, you know, like there's ups and downs. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, so you, you can, a waxing away, isn't it, a power? And I think it, yeah. it, you can see how much it really does come down to the, the, the rulers of, at the time, you know, with stronger dynasties keeping its stability, this dynasty, mm. the Angelescana dynasty, um, being essentially a nightmare. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely a waxing away. And with Venice especially, because... They will have their revenge, right, Venice, um, famously. And <laughs> so there's another massacre, basically, with the death of uh, Alexios Komnenos II. Mm -hmm. um, he is replaced. And so when he, when his successor, uh, Adronikos Komnenos, is uh, welcomed, he's basically, um, he, he's, like, welcomed in the crowd, and they, like, stir up such a, like, rabble and such a, like, hype that they end up massacring loads of Latins, and it becomes... The massacre what? of Latin in 1182. <laughs> um, so like 60,000 Latins are killed and are like murdered and arrested. It's really bad. I mean, that's really bad. That's, that's pretty um, bad. I mean, I'm, I'm always a little bit skeptical of like um, for these sure, large for numbers sure. in, in particularly medieval and uh, sure. probably classical sources of the worst offenders of it, where they'll talk about like a million ghouls or something. <laughs> Like, yeah. like, come on, really? Like, five billion Latins were murdered. Yeah, like, yeah, like, were there that many people in Gaul at the time? Like, I don't think so. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so, but it was a lot of people then, basically. Like, a, a huge yeah. amount of people, more so than the original kind of um, persecution, right? And that, that's that's important. Okay, so, so the number is higher as well. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you have all this, um, basically. Um, cool. Continuous instability, basically, in fighting with the ruling kind of um, emperors and stuff. Um, so what I've described really to you guys is, is the kind of the increasing turbulence politically, domestically, you know, uh, and also like in, in foreign affairs too, you have, you know, the Venetians are big allies of, of the Byzantines, you know, and for them to have a war with them over this Normally, like, yeah. <laughs> xenophobic um, attacks and stuff, it's, it's like showing how growingly unstable they are politically uh, with the decisions, right? Um, and so we move quite neatly on to uh, the Angelois, so the Angelois dynasty. So um, in 1203, um, we have Alexios IV Angelos. He escapes jail and flees to the west, okay. where he, he promises the leaders of the Fourth Crusade generous where, payment. Where does he go to? To Florence or to Rome or where? He goes to uh, a Germanic place. I think he's um, he's related uh, to a Frankish king. Um, okay. And he marries someone there actually as well. Um, they have quite good ties in general with the Franks um, at this period. They intermarry yeah. quite a so, lot. So is, is this France or the Holy, Holy Roman Empire? Uh, I don't know actually. Um, let me have a quick look for you. Essentially, yeah, I mean, yeah. a lot of the time in Byzantine sources, they don't differentiate at all right. like, between, between either one. <laughs> he goes to, to Swabia, the king of Germany. So Philip of his brother-in-law, Philip of Swabia. There we go. Um, but yeah, so the Swabia is like, I guess, modern day, uh, Germany. Um, yeah. I'm not, so I, the King of Germany though, it says here, I'm not sure how much I, 
trust that source we're talking about yeah. 1195 i don't know <laughs> uh, that, it's, it's in the Holy empire isn't it yeah yeah but a yeah. king of germany in i mean the, the um the different elector system is quite confusing so yeah yeah um, yeah well, I mean, the whole Roman Empire is, is, <laughs> is like ridiculously complex and confusing. I don't yeah, know. It's, it's insanely complicated, yeah. If you want a headache, like look at the map of the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah, it's, it's horrible. <laughs> yeah, apparently there's, there's a phobia of um, like kind of uneven borders or like bad borders. <laughs> That's like, like specifically diagnosed. So I, really? I mean, if you have that, I can't remember what it's called. If you have that, oh God. don't look at the map. Probably the worst <laughs> thing you could ever look at. Like, <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, it's really bad. Sounds like yeah. the ancestor to electoral gerrymandering, basically. Like, you know, <laughs> Yeah, probably, yeah, that's true, true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's quite similar, I guess, actually. Yeah, yeah. With the yeah. Let, 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 me, let, me, let me mess up the board and hopefully win a few cattle in the process. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it makes I, no sense. I guess if you do have that phobia, the relief you must have looking at modern day Germany, right? And France and Italy. <laughs> like, after looking at that, would be, yeah, I don't think I'll ever have insane. that level of relief. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so this guy basically goes there um, and he basically is like, I'll give you guys loads of money um, if you help uh -huh. me regain the throne, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Which obviously he can't keep the promise because he doesn't know. He's been away for a while. He doesn't know how yeah. bad it's gotten, like in terms of the finances of the the empire, right? Oh, yeah, and yeah. so he's basically, um, I mean, he's he's not he's not able to pay them back. He promises, I think, Venice two hundred thousand. Um, oh no! Uh, I don't know gold pieces. I mean, it's, and, um, it's pretty predictable where they're going to get the money from, then, isn't it? <laughs> he, he can't even give them a hundred thousand in the end. Like, um, yeah. But well, I mean, I, I presume they just loot it, right? Yeah. Well, this is what happens. <laughs> Okay. Cool. <laughs> basically, the, it's impossible to keep the promises, um, and so this brings basically, you know, about the uh, sack of Constantinople, which happens yes. then, basically, <laughs> which is yeah, so. Really so bad. this really kind of is the the fall of Constantinople, isn't it? Yeah. This this definitely I would consider to be very much the beginning of the end slash like the end with an addendum. You know, like yeah. it's um, it's very much it's burned, pillaged, destroyed. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. thousands are killed. Um, many inhabitants like flee. The, pop the the city becomes like a ruin. It's like depopulated mm. completely. Um, yeah, and it, ne it never recovers, basically, does it? Until after no. the, the conquest by the Ottomans. Basically, yeah, because uh, as well, it, the mm. empire gets partitioned right by um, yeah. by the Crusaders, and so you, you get the Latin kind of empire now ruling over Constantinople, and you have these kind of uh, Greek kind of uh, you know vassal kind of successor states mm. um and so at this point the borders is completely diminished because at the same time um you've got the uh, serbian empire so serbian king stefan urosh the fourth Dushan. so he proclaims himself emperor of the serbs and greeks which i think is interesting as well oh, that's um, interesting yeah. and he makes it all the way to like thessaly epirus like oh, wow. <laughs> he conquers a huge amount and i mean he's the serbian empire is only around for like about 40 years but um, it basically it's it's insane. But the thing is as well, he doesn't really fight battles to, to win that territory. He, he basically goes in and he's like, yeah. "We'll treat you better than you're being treated." Like, get, you know, like yeah. chill. You know, like basically that's what happens. So he gets all the way down to like uh, Greece, right? Um, and Byzantines basically do nothing they can do to stop him. Yeah, um, I guess they can't do anything at this point. Pretty much, yeah. They're they're completely depleted. I think morally as well, and. Um, and so the, the final kind of Greek dynasty that gets thrown uh, is from Mycenae, 
the Paleologos dynasty. So dynasty. Uh, so it's the last kind of Byzantine <laughs> dynasty to, to rule um, Constantinople. Yeah. And, um, you know, basically it's kind of a disaster. I mean, it's they, they tried their best, but by this point you start to get only really two areas that are left. So you have Moria, which is kind of the uh, kind of mm-hmm. like Laconia, uh, kind of like the Peloponnese area. Southern, yeah, southern Greece, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Which is yeah. quite profitable, apparently. It's quite quite like a, a rich area, uh, luckily. But it's that, and it's Constantinople, basically. Um, mm. And you know, during this time, you've got an increased. How, how, how do they how do they get the Latins out? Uh, I think it's just like an uprising. I think they they eventually realize it's like a lot of work, yeah. and it's a waning like empire and stuff. And yeah, I said the Latins leave. I guess there's nothing left to lose. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, <laughs> I don't know why you would stick around after looting the whole thing, burning it all down. Yeah, good point, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah this is a good place to to like to live in after I've just burnt it. Like, the pile of rubble, right? Like, I mean, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. And this is the thing that we see quite a lot in other empires, right? So mercenaries mm. becomes like an increased uh, resource. So um, mm. this also means an increased expenditure in kind of keeping armed forces, shifting I, allegiances yeah. to. It becomes a bargaining chip politically. Um, it also means you import various demographics, which then destabilize politics because it requires mm. favors towards certain demographics. Um, they also offload a lot of the economy to Italian states, which is, we, we mentioned this mm. earlier, so I have the figure here. So only 13% of customs, uh, custom dues passing through the Bosporus Strait were going to the empire uh, in 1348, wow. which is only okay. 13% of the customs. Yeah, that's mad. Um, I mean, they, they like, the Genovese especially were getting so much money from them at that point. Um, and also, you know, corruption. So nobles weren't paying taxes or they weren't joining the army. They weren't like doing their bits. I mean, this is crazy. So in 1343, the Empress Anna pawned the crown jewels for 30,000 ducats to Venice to win a civil war, which she ended up losing, which is... <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's so embarrassing, isn't it? The, the crown jewels. And then after that, they were using like stained glass as the crown jewels. Really? Like, to replicate oh. the, the gems. So sad to think about. I mean, yeah, it's that's really, I mean, wow. Yeah. <laughs> not go to Ladbrokes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> lost it all, lost the empire, lost the house, lost the. <laughs> yeah, that's really bad. Yeah. Um, and it, it keeps getting worse. I mean, you've got plague that comes in. Um, and this brings us kind of into. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, the, the Black Death, right? Yeah. The Black Death, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which so, so the population now is what, about two people or? about two two and a half people there's there's yeah, <laughs> must be quite bad after this yeah, yeah well um basically this is the, the end so we've already talked about i mean these these past few points that, I've, that we've talked about here mm-hmm. it's just like it's it's a complete shell it's a complete hollow like emptiness yeah. right i mean this is like not an empire anymore is it this is a, a, a victim struggling to like it's, hold it's, it. it's basically a, a city with walls too big for them to man. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Like everything is too big for capacity. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. So apparently around, so 1453, which we're, we're now in basically, uh, the mm-hmm. population of Constantinople is about 50 to 100,000 people, um, okay. which is hugely diminished. I can't remember the original number actually. It might be good to look up. I think from um, when it was founded, it was um, a quarter of a million, I think. Right, 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 mm-hmm. right. So there you go. And I mean, as you mentioned, like yeah. the numbers probably pumped in this particular case where like I think 50,000 is optimistic um, as a population amount for yeah. like so it's really bad right like it's a complete shell um, and so we get onto the Ottomans here basically um, 
And essentially, right, I, I won't I won't steal your bit, so I'll skip over what they're doing in the that's, region that's time. But so this this is the high point of the Ottomans, so or one one of the high points. Yeah, so it's fine, the, yeah. I mean, this is a pretty crazy like success story for them, isn't it? Because they besiege Constantinople and they win the siege, which is crazy because it's like unsiegeable. The, the Theodosian walls, which we uh, which kind of surround the city, right? They're yeah. 20 kilometers. Although, to, to, to be fair, you know, as you mentioned earlier, it was taken by the Latins. So, um, yeah, well, they were, but they were kind of let in. Well, it? It, it, it was like a yeah. You know, it was the whole Christian world basically <laughs> like, attacking them. True, true. But you know, it's 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 true. not it's not quite impregnable. You know, like true, um, true, true. Well, I mean, I mean, from from the from the perspective of. Um, you know, uh, is, Islamic empires. You know, there there had been Arab sieges in the mm -hmm. the seventh and eighth centuries that had failed. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's, it's yeah. definitely fallen before. <laughs> I mean, they've they've constantly been attacked, and um, you know, yeah. by from the north as well, by the Avars, the Serbs, the Bulgarians. Yes, like yes, yeah. 20, 20 I mean, I mean it, the uh, you know the, the walls held all of those times, didn't they? Mm. I mean, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. So it's about twenty kilometers of walls. The it's like a 20 meter yeah. wide and seven meter wide ditch, which could be flooded with mm. water, right? Um, so behind, so behind that you have multiple layers of walls, basically, uh, that kind of increase in in scale and in height, right? Um, the final defense is almost five meters thick, 12 meters high, and um, like you have 96 projecting towers. Each tower is placed about 70 meters apart, and was about 20 meters high. And so the distance between the outer ditch of the inner wall was about 60 meters. Um, and the wow. height difference was about 30 meters. So it's like, it's impressive stuff, you know? Like, I think they've been around since like the seventh century, the Theodosian Wars. They've been built upon, built upon, reinforced, mm -hmm. like, and it's super cool. Like, uh, they still exist, right? To not, yeah, they're, they're still there in in, uh, in Istanbul, yeah. Mm -hmm. But they're, they're a crazy kind of like, engineering kind of project you know to, to protect the city definitely, and definitely. as you as you mentioned you know it's, it's a dwindling population in like a city that's too big right with luckily good fortifications but that's it so um basically constantine the 11th is the last uh, emperor of the Byzantine empire mm -hmm. uh quite fitting for compared to constantine the first being the one who inaugurates the city right true, true. um <laughs> You have that a lot with Roman history, isn't it? With um, Romulus Augustulus being the final. Western, That's a good point. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Right, and yeah, now you've got this. One. So he basically he basically messes up because he gets a bit cocky, as the Romans do. He threatens to stop mm. paying the Sultan because he's he's paying the Sultan oh, no. now, like already. Yeah. He's like the Sultan has crossed the Bosporus. It's in the Balkans. Like he's fighting off like Skanderbeg and the Albanians, and then like yeah, I mean, the, the, the Ottomans are already in Europe, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, for a long time. I mean, so you get the Battle of Kosovo-Polje in, in 13, I think, 77, um, which is a fundamental battle uh, between kind of, um, mm. you know, Serbian and, and uh, Balkan kind of forces against uh, the Ottomans, which, you know, has a huge impact on uh, modern history today. It's a huge national kind okay, of definitely. moment. Um, and so you, you can see how far north they are. They're basically hitting the Danube, right, um, at this point, while also... You know, Constantinople is just surrounded from both sides for like it's ages. Island, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so the Ottomans have about 100,000 soldiers. Um, oh, and so Constantine basically threatens to stop paying the tax and he threatens to support the Sultan's cousin to the throne, <laughs> which is oh, like yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> um, so the Ottomans have 100,000 soldiers, 69 cannons, 126 ships. Uh, the Romans yeah. have 7,000 soldiers. <laughs> 500 of which were from the cousin of the sultan. <laughs> um, they have about 15 cannons. 
uh, about 30,000 locals as soldiers and 26 ships. So it's, it's on paper looking really, really bad for them. Um, there's also this- I mean, as, as, as well, right? Like, so, I mean, I don't know, you're probably going to say this, but um, didn't, didn't the cannon maker yeah. um, go, go to the, the, um, the Byzantine Emperor first and be like, you know, do you want these cannons? And he was yes. like, oh, I can't afford them. He literally, <laughs> he couldn't afford them, right? So there was a guy called yeah. Orban, like a mysterious figure, said to be mm-hmm. Hungarian or maybe German, but yeah, he, he, he literally goes to the Emperor, he's like, I'm going to build this guy for you guys. And he's like, we can't afford it. I mean, sure enough, he's wearing like a stained steel, <laughs> stained like glass uh, crown on his head, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, so it's, it's kind of like uh, if the Queen was wearing stuff from accessorize yeah <laughs> yeah i mean you know you don't want that that's not a good sign is it like um and so yeah the, the basically the, the engineer offers to that and then they're like no so he then goes to mehmed the second the ottoman yes. sultan and he's like i'll you, help you, you guys take down. <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's like i'll take down these guys if for you if you want right i mean this guy was the original hustler you know? this guy has the grind set like, yeah, like, for me, like going, selling his wares um, so yeah, this, this, um, crazy cannon that he produces takes three months to build. It's called the Basilica. Yeah, I mean, they, they're huge, aren't they? Yeah. It's crazy. So 27 feet long, 600 pounds oh. stones projectiles that can be shot for over a mile. Right. Um, wow. it weighs about 1200 pounds, which is a lot. Um, <laughs> takes yeah, about three hours to reload and it gets so hot from, from the firing that it overheats. Mm-hmm. You have to constantly pull, uh, uh pour like things over it so it doesn't overheat yeah and they can only be fired about three times a day so but but it's like insanely powerful it's insanely big it takes like 60 ox to like carry it like it's crazy (laughs) cannon right yeah it's it's a real feat of engineering isn't it yeah yeah and so basically we get onto the the final siege i suppose which you know is an episode in itself right the siege of constantinople is is a hugely expansive and you can talk about it for hours but essentially what's really cool they have this chain across the Golden Horn, which kind of protects the city from uh, naval invasion, right? Yes. Um, and so it's really funny, though. So obviously the, the, the Ottomans have plenty more ships than them. They can't cross this chain, right? So what they do, they cross the boats across the land into the back. So they basically forego the chain through land, yes. grease up like logs, and they put the, the boats on these greased up logs across the land into the <laughs> water, uh, so the the Greeks tried like these fireboats to so, like fill the boats with fire, then attack them and like get them blowing up and stuff. Doesn't quite work. Um, essentially, what that means is that now they do you want to explain what a firebird is quickly because it's I feel like a lot of people don't know what that is. Oh, I, I mean it's just like a boat with like explosives and fire, and it's kind yeah. of like yeah. Essentially, they try to ram into the boats, explode them, and set off a chain reaction, yeah. right? Um, basically which is smart right i mean um yeah it's, it's pretty clever it's also like a last resort isn't it you're, you're giving up a, a ship right you're, you're sacrificing resources it's, it's kind of like an ancient naval drone isn't it yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but in any case it doesn't work so they're they're, they're overrun and what that means is that they can no longer just concentrate forces on the walls which are like in the in the west they now have to yeah. also concentrate forces where the naval invasion is happening where the, the ships mm-hmm. are right in the north spreads up the fence um and so the the siege itself lasts just over a month and it starts on the 1st of april um 1453 uh the all-out assault on may 29th basically they eventually breach the gates uh janissaries they, they plant an ottoman flag on one of the towers the general kind of leading the defense uh gets seriously wounded and has to leave uh has to has to leave <laughs> um, <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm out of here. And uh, yeah, basically, like they they breach the gates after three days of rampaging, which they loot, they burn everything down, um, they stop the looting, they save the Aya Sophia because they think it's beautiful, they keep it as a mosque, and um, yeah, and and so the the final emperor who we mentioned, Constantine the Eleventh, top of the show, the quote that we read out. That was meant to be from a speech that he said, which obviously there's no way to start yes. a speech like that. No, no, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a typical, like, um, in the classical tradition, like, just basically, it's probably a made-up Yeah, it's like, it's like, I was there yeah. 50 years ago. Here's the exact transcription of, like, this page. Like, <laughs> yeah, I can, remember it. I can remember it perfectly, of course, yeah. <laughs> it came like, to be in a dream, I remember. <laughs> yeah, it's just absolute nonsense, yeah. <laughs> um, but essentially, what happens, yeah, he, he's like, yeah, guys, it's been great, um, I'm out. And then he, he basically, he dies, he goes down with the ship. He's like, I, you know, I can't be an emperor without an empire. And, um, you know, it is disputed whether he actually did do that. I like to think he did. He died in the battle. He was never seen again in any case. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, the empire falls, becomes conquered by the Ottomans, and it's goodbye to the Byzantines, basically. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really significant moment in world history, isn't it? Like, you know, the fall mm-hmm. of what was often seen as like, you know, an eternal sort of Christian city. Um, yeah. Just yeah looking definitely. at how the implications are for today, you know, it's a it's a really cataclysmic moment. It's almost a bit like if if Washington, D.C. sort of falls. Out. I mean, it doesn't have the same religious significance, but like, Ooh, you know, just true. a major world city collapse in that manner. Um, I think we mentioned quite well, like there was a gradual decline, but I rec- I imagine it would have rocked a lot of Christian capitals, you know, this young and emerging empire mm-hmm. taking out what had literally, what, what literally was, you know, the last vestige of, you know, the sort of Roman empire, isn't it? So it's a yeah. really big moment in world, in, 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 in world history, isn't it? Yeah, and, and like now it's on a doorstep too. It's like on the Danube, right? It's like it's, it's going further and further into Europe, right? Because mm. Constantinople, you can say it's somewhat far away, but it's it's moving up north and north and north, right? Like um, past the Balkans now, right? So yeah, yeah. you can only imagine. It's as, pretty as, good as well, the, uh, the the shift from having a, a weak power, right? Uh, you know, from the perspective of um, say like the Holy Roman Emperor in Vienna, right? Having mm. a weak power in Constantinople um, is is kind of good for you, right? You don't have to worry about it too much. But now there's like a a, a quite energetic power, like yeah. <laughs> they, they, exact same place, you know. Um, I, th- I think what I often people. find interesting as well about the fall of Constantinople in general is even the Ottomans understand the power of being linked to sort of, you know, the old power of Rome, essentially. Um, oh, I think yeah, yeah. It, don't the Ottomans often style the sultans, you know, the the spiritual successes of the Romans, essentially. I think Kaiser Irum is one of the yeah, titles yeah, so given to sort of like the soldiers. Exactly, yeah. I, th- I think that's it's going exactly. to show like even, yeah. you know, that that even names have weight, you know, e- particularly in that day and age in terms of like, you know, the symbolism of Roman needing to capture that in, as, as a way of having legitimacy, not only in the eyes of, you know, the Islamic world, but also in the eyes of like, you know, the the, the wider world, which includes, you know, the, the, the Western Western Europe and, you know, Christendom. So I've always find it quite interesting how this was a story of another religion essentially conquering another, but also needing to appropriate its symbols to have any power to its claim, basically, which is um, which is definitely yeah. interesting, for sure. True, true. I mean, um, you know, um, yeah, like the, the Ottoman Sultan has that title until 1922, like, like when, when he's, um, yeah. you know, the, the final one is deposed. Uh, oh. yeah, to make way for the Turkish Republic, um, yeah. So I mean, so some some people argue, you know, like um, you know, so there's a Caesar of Rome for 
all the way from the 550, well, I guess from Julius Caesar until um, all the way until 1922, which is yeah. <laughs> someone has the title, you know, like, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it's just pretty mad. Um, all right. So so should we take, should we take a quick break? Yes, let's do it. Excellent. Excellent. Well, <laughs> welcome back. <laughs> so, I mean, after the, the, um, the great presentation you did on the, the fall of Constantinople, right? Um, we're going to go up to the second fall of Constantinople, <laughs> or even the third after, after the Latin Empire, right? Um, so uh, we're going to talk about the Ottomans. So one, one of their heights um, was obviously when they, when they took Constantinople from the Byzantines and made it the new capital um in 1453 i believe yep yeah cool excellent um yeah and um then you know they they have quite a long period um of about pretty much 200 years of doing very well and then famously probably one of the most famous ottoman uh, sultans after uh mehmed ii uh, you know who, who took the city and obviously Suleiman the Magnificent, and uh, he is, uh, lots of people, um, that's kind of a very Donald Trump thing to say, isn't it? But like, lots, lots, lots of, lots of um, uh, Ottoman historians, and then later Turkish historians, um, kind of view him through the lens of following what's called the Circle of Justice, which is um, a uh, Ottoman and then later Turkish concept of kingship, where... Um, the sultan is meant to be a lawgiver, in which case, you know, um, in, I think one of the, the names for Suleiman the, the Magnificent in Turkish is uh, Suleiman the, the lawgiver, for instance, right? So it gives it shows you the importance. Um, and the, the key point is that they are just, basically. They, they rule over a just realm, um, you know, so if, uh, journeys, if I steal your chicken, um, you know, I'm going to be punished for it, basically. <laughs> you know, like... Uh, <laughs> Doesn't matter how much I offer Adrian as the as the the guard in, in terms of bribes, right? I, I will I will be punished, and you know Adrian will be punished as well, right? And that's that's a just <laughs> situation, right? So that Sounds that fair. is the ideal, basically. And uh, so the Magnificent, um, you know, in the 16th century is seen to epitomise that. Um, yeah, during this period as well, you've also got the uh, the fleet of Barbarossa, um, which kind of literally kind of runs rampant. Um, it's, you know, the Ottoman fleet of, of Barbarossa. Uh, runs rampant around the Mediterranean, um, and the Ottomans are for a, a, a time the dominant power in the Mediterranean. Oh right, um, Yeah, so you know, so um, it, through the break, but I was, I was, you know, we were talking about how um, they would, uh, you know, winter the ships at Toulon on the south coast of France. Um, you know, so you know that's quite away from from uh, Constantinople to uh, the south of France. Yeah, um, and. You know, they they had this alliance um, as well, particularly with the French. Um, that was that was kind of fairly consistent um, throughout their history. Um, yeah, so that's that's one of the high points, pretty much. Um, so there's there's some dips there. So you've got the Battle of Lepanto, where they lose um, to a Venetian papal and largely Italian fleet in 1571, um, and it's very close to the. Um, to where the uh, the Athenians managed to rebuff uh, the Persians uh, during one of the the many Persian you know what's referred to as the Persian Wars um, by Greek uh, ancient Greek historians, um, 
yeah, except this time, obviously, the ships are coming from Greece, uh, you know, <laughs> like, you know, because because Greece is obviously part of the Ottoman Empire, right? Um, so uh, Jonas mentioned earlier as well how um, the Sultan has the title of Kaisuri uh, Irum, you know, Caesar of Rome as well. So um, they're very much trying to build on, uh, you know, not only their past success, uh, but trying to kind of um, take on this heritage. Uh, obviously, a lot of people in the empire are, um, you know, can still speak Greek at this at this point, uh, are still Greek, um, mm. and uh, are also still Orthodox Christian as well. Uh, so there's there's uh, you know there's definitely that heritage is part of the kind of uh, poly, um, well yeah, but poly poly nature of the empire, right? Because because they they move into Constantinople and in Istanbul right and that becomes their their base like that becomes their fundamental yeah, capital. yeah. So, so so it's it's not actually referred to as uh, as Istanbul until um, it's kind of debated but um, until generally after um, the First World War um, oh, right. it's, still, it's still referred to as Constantinople but in Turkish the the, the name in Turkish escapes me but uh, it's it's very similar to to Constantinople. Oh. What, but why is it that they? Is it just because it's yeah. closer to like their ambitions west, or is why? it? Like... Well, so, so I mean, two two things, right? Obviously, like the prestige, like um, just right, in the sense yeah. that it's a big ancient city, and second of all, um, Rome is mentioned quite a lot in the in the Quran. Um, so oh, right. to be the holder of Rome, um, right? Constantinople being the, the descendant of Rome is a big deal, right? So that that gives the Ottoman Sultan a lot of prestige, um, particularly as uh, you know, because one one of the uh, the features of a sultanate is that the the sultan uh, is also the head of the faith, right? In in a sense, right? Um, uh, or um, you know, it's it's not quite the same, obviously, as uh, as as a, as a pope, but it's um, they they are in you know nominally in charge of religious affairs, right, right, um, right, in their state, and then increasingly over the history of the Ottoman Empire, um, there's lots of, for instance, uh, Indian Muslims that that look towards the Ottoman Sultan um, as being kind of uh, a very very important figure um, wow. within within Islam, right? Which you know, obviously the British when they colonize India are quite worried about, <laughs> and and uh, that's that's one of the reasons why they try to undermine the empire, uh, you know, because they don't want the rebellions ah. in India, um, you know, because because when they do happen, uh, although the British win some of the time, well, well, basically, you know. They, you know the British do win, right? But uh, they're very damaging, right? Um, so, um, yeah. So we, you know, so we've just covered the the heights there, really, and then uh, onto where a lot of historians view view the the fall to happen. So you know, if we're talking about territorial extent, then uh, you can't get any clearer than um, the siege of Vienna, really, in uh, sixteen eighty three. Um, so the prelude to this is that the Ottomans are helping um, Hungarian Protestants uh, against um, the Holy Roman Emperor in Vienna um, to kind of keep Hungarian independence. Obviously, um, the Holy Roman, Holy Roman Emperor in Vienna eventually takes over Hungary, and uh, then you end up with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, which is a kind of a evolution of that. Uh, but at this time, there you know there's a lot of Hungarian lords. Um, that are very anti anti Austrian, uh, you know. So so the the Ottomans are supporting their independence basically and kind of feeding off 
um, the various wars of uh, religion between Protestants and Catholics that are happening in Europe at this time. Insanely confusing stuff, isn't it? I mean, if what I'm saying is confusing, let me know. No, no, you're saying <laughs> it's really confusing. I mean, the, the the kind of the Christian wars in in Europe, like the Thirty Years' War, and all that kind of stuff, is like ridiculous. Oh, oh, it's, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Just no, like no, allegiances between. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's it's crazy. I I did a whole module on the Thirty Years' War at university. I think only. In the last two weeks, was like, did I finally think like, oh, I think I've got this now. Like, it's no it, sense. it took a while to kind yeah. of come to an understanding as what is going on. Uh, <laughs> but you know, but like like a lot of uh, Europe during this time, um, you know. So that th so this is obviously my impression of the Thirty Years' War. Um, there are other historians who, well, so I say, oh, sorry, there are there are historians. I'm not a historian. That 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 would <laughs> that would dispute uh, what I have to say. But um, I know there are some don't agree with me, um, which is ba basically right. It's um it's, it's similar to like in France you have uh, uh, Le Fronde, or uh, in Eng in England you have the English Civil War, and effectively it's where uh, the nobility are trying to assert more power and dominance over the uh, the centralized was what um over these the central state and the central state is also trying to expand and assert more power over the nobility right so you have this kind of inevitable conflict um at this time and it's it's mostly uh jogged on by the uh, increases in literacy and uh printing presses so it's easier to control areas because you have written words right so so obviously you know if i if i say something to you jonas then i'm like oh you know go tell Adrian and he's uh, I don't know it'll take you a hundred days to get there like <laughs> you know, it's not really as effective is it as, it, as if uh, I give you a written message or um, you know vice versa you know we can communicate via letters it's much easier to, to administer administer things right uh, and therefore to exert central authority right um, yeah so um, yeah so that so that's so you know there's a lot of these kind of wars in Europe at the time um and you know personally you know I'm, obviously I'm, I'm not denying denying that people uh didn't believe in the Re in the reformation or didn't believe ardently in Catholicism obviously they did um but there there's clearly you know we're not uh unipolar um uh individuals you know as, as a you know as, as human beings you know we, there, we have multiple um kind of um yeah, multiple reasons for doing things, right? Yeah, yeah. That's that's um, the thing about the Thirty Years' War, isn't it? You had Protestant countries on the Catholic sides, and you had various allegiances yeah. kind of forming beyond the religion, right? Where there were yeah, like, pretexts of religion. It, for, exactly right. So, so yeah. you have France, you know, Catholic France, allying with Sweden yeah, exactly. against um, Catholic um, Emperor of, of uh, the Holy Roman Empire, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, there's yeah, a lot of. Yeah. Um, yeah, like like any war, like any any geopolitics, any international relations, like there's there's a lot of um, uh, you know people trying to get one up on each other, whether it makes sense or not, on a mm. um, kind of belief level, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, it's it's much more kind of real politics than that. Um, yeah, so yeah, so the Ottomans basically get involved in in the in with the Hungarians against the the Austrians, um, you know, who at that time hold. Um, the imperial crown of the Holy Roman Emperor, um, yeah, and they then uh, make a play for the um, to attack Vienna, which is the imperial capital, right? Uh, so obviously at this point as well, I think this is this is sometimes well, I think no, to be fair, I think it is quite often overlooked. So obviously, if if the uh, the Ottoman Sultan is the Kaiseri Irum, 
and then you have the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, right? <laughs> then you, you come back to this old thing, which used to happen between the emperor of um, Constantinople, the Byzantine Empire, Byzantine Emperor, and the, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, where they used to kind of argue about who was the real successor to the Roman Empire, right? Um, and that that isn't often talked about with um, with the Ottomans and, and their relationship with the Holy Roman Empire, but uh, obviously they have the title as well, right? So they they want to prove that they they are you know, the, yeah. the the uh, successors, right? The successor state. Um, so yeah, they march on Vienna in uh, 1683. Um, by all accounts, it's it's a huge army. Like uh, you know, this is the height of their power. There's uh, there's Janissaries, so. Uh, you know, for people that don't know, Janissaries effectively are um, come from a, a long tradition in um, uh, empires in the Middle East of uh, having uh, slave soldiers. Obviously, that's that's very different from um, the, the the generally the European concept of slavery, um, where effectively what happens is these people are uh, normally normally they're Christian boys uh, taken uh, from Greece, Albania. Um, and the European parts of the Ottoman Empire, um, uh, and they're then um, uh, kind of pressed into service. They're they're, they're enslaved, um, but then they can then reach very high positions within the Ottoman government. So there's there's a there's there's nowhere near the level of stigma uh, attached. For instance, you know, I mean, there's there's no way that would happen in um, you know, say for example, the American South in the, in the 19th century, um, for instance. So it's, it's, it's a kind of, a, you know, it's, it's the same word that we use in English slavery, but it's, it's, it's quite, it's quite different. Um, so yeah. Uh, so, so the, but these, these also are seen as the elite troops. Yeah, exactly. Of, yep. of right. Um, and they actually are the first to invent volley fire, um, which is something that becomes very synonymous, um, with the British army in the 19th and uh, 18th century, which is basically, um, to to fire not all at once on a line but to kind of spread it out so you can maintain a uh, a constant stream of fire right uh, so you don't really give your enemy a time to relax or to take a break which it kind of seems out. obvious now right like it's uh... <laughs> yes yeah, it seems obvious now but obviously as well it takes a lot of training right so, yeah. so if you're being trained from when you're um say a 12 year old boy um to uh you know you're fighting in a battle when you when you're 18 that's five years compared to um, a lot of armies, sure, they have professional armies. Um, uh, some of them sort of semi-feudal armies, uh, like particularly in Russia, that's the case. Um, but um, you know, the level of training is much higher. Um, they they don't make up the entire army, but uh, you know a lot of it is still um, basically these levies um, that, are, that are also musket armed, but aren't aren't as uh, aren't as good. Um, but yeah, they're they're very feared, um, and obviously as well they bring very big cannons, <laughs> which, uh, you know, they, they kind of like on a theme, you know, they realized they worked at Constantinople and, um, you know, if it works, just keep doing it basically. Right. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, but then, um, yeah. So the siege of Vienna fails, basically there's a huge, um, uh, kind of alliance of Catholic countries, um, to, um, to stop the siege. And Adrian, uh, I don't know if you want to talk about the wing two stars at all. <laughs> well yeah they, they were really great i mean uh <laughs> the uh, the holy league right like um famously i guess the holy league, yeah. i guess it's like the the thing about 
the Battle of Vienna is, is, is a very kind of big moment in uh, Polish national pride as well, when we talk about the history of the Commonwealth, right, so the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and the, the kind of supremacy of the winged hussars, right, which is like these heavy-mounted um, cavalry units. They have like lances and sabers, right, and um, famously they have these kind of wings, right, they have these like kind of steel frame uh, wings, which are um, kind of on their backs, and they wear like kind of leopard skin, uh, kind of capes and stuff and coats. Uh, they look very cool. They look very cool. And uh, they're kind of meant there for intimidation as well. Like the, the wings, apparently, they would kind of screech with the with the mobility of like, the horses. So you get oh, more, like, really a shrieking sound from like the, the air mm-hmm. as well. So so it's sad. I don't know if that's necessarily true. But... I, well, I, I, you know, I, I imagine times, you know, 10,000, that, that would be pretty definite. Yeah. And I mean, the, yeah. the thing is for them, they were very like, strong and heavy right they, they were like i mean with this particular thing it was the battle of vienna where they they kind of charged in towards the end and they just obliterated the, the forces standing there because they were just like for morale as well like just terrifying to have these like massive like heavily decorated armed uh cavalry units basically coming yeah. at you with sabers and, and lances and stuff right so i think the um yeah it's it's, it's a very cool uh, very cool kind of concept i think um mm. And Battle of Vienna is what kind of made them famous on the international stage, uh, for sure. True, yeah, true. And it's uh, it's also uh, where the croissant is uh, one, one of the legendary uh, origins of the croissant. <laughs> it's, it's, meant, it's meant to be from the siege of Vienna, apparently. Yeah, um, and a bagel yeah, as well, no? Like, uh, the bagel? Oh, I, I didn't know about the bagel. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently it's where the, uh, the Viennese were kind of mocking the, um, the crescent flag of the Ottomans by making it into a pastry. No, I didn't oh, know about that. Um, and then, I mean, this is one of the, one of the alleged origins, right? I mean, legends, there's, there's yeah. multiple, <laughs> multiple alleged origins. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's one that I heard um, uh, fairly recently. Actually. Yeah, so, you, you briefly talked about the Battle of Constantinople, and it's often yeah. framed as like this, you know, apocalyptic battle between, you know, yeah. Islam and Christendom, which, you know, sort of defined yeah. the fate of like, you know, European history and whatnot for, you know, the, for hundreds of years afterwards. So how significant do you think the battle was in terms of checking Ottoman expansion into Europe? Because it's often quite said that like, mm. you know, if the Ottomans have had won, you know, how far would the Ottomans have like spread in terms of into yeah. Western Europe? So how significant do you think the battle was in terms of, you know, acting as a sort of limit on how far the Ottomans could expand westward? So, uh, so the the siege of Vienna, right? Yeah, mm. cool. So, um, it's interesting because if you look at the borders of the Balkans, right? Like, um, so you've got the Danube, which uh, obviously you know rivers are good borders, right? Um, yeah, that that is a pretty solid border in the Balkans. Uh, if you want to, you know, if you hold the whole Balkans, which which uh, they mostly did, um, you know, if you hold uh, what is now modern day Serbia, uh, southern Romania, um, and just kind of follow follow the river. It's pretty secure, um, and it's quite easy to take before then. But then, kind of advancing beyond that, which they do, they do a little bit, is more difficult, right? Because you've got to then build the bridges. You've got to, um, uh, you've then got to kind of like transport everything across the bridge, um, and everything. Uh, obviously, Vienna is on the Danube, right? So um, that would have been pretty key. But how how much further they would have gone? Um, obviously it's hard to do a counterfactual obviously right um, but um, it's interesting how you know they, they could have at one point fairly 
uh, well, not easily, but it, it would have made sense to take maybe like uh, southern Italy, like the heel of Italy, for instance. Um, I feel like that would make more sense than going northwards in a lot of ways because you, you have this natural border of the Danube. It's easier to defend um, against attacks from um, the Holy, Holy Roman Empire and um, you know, from Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. Um, yeah, but you know they're they're rebuffed, I guess. So so we'll never know. <laughs> I mean, it's worth mentioning as well. Like the geography of the area is quite difficult because you have the Danube, but then you also have like mountains, basically. That's, yeah, exactly. That yeah. Right? So, yeah, that's that's a big problem. Yeah, I think especially like yeah. Austria, the Tyrol, and you go into like Italy as well. You you yes feasibly could go into like Venice, right, the lagoon, and then southwards, right. But you still have to cross oh. mountains. You'd have to like still uh, from Austria, especially, isn't it? So I suppose. It's hard to say, isn't it? The Carpathian Mountains in the north and east of there, isn't it, as well? So Exactly, yeah. I mean, they're, they're a big barrier for sure. Um, yeah. Well, um, I've definitely seen that as, like, the, I mean, the, the the kind of significance of the Battle of Vienna in, like, religious, at least in the, the celebrations towards, like, uh, Jan Sobieski, who was the, the kind of commander mm-hmm. of the battle at the Polish uh, kind of king at the time. Um, definitely very much decorated as like a defender of the faith, right? Um, it was definitely seen as like a big win for kind of European Christianity and Catholicism especially, because um, I think he blessed the battle, like he dedicated like the Virgin Mary or something. And, okay. <laughs> yeah, as you do, you know, but um, it, it definitely... Yeah, it's, seems- it's, the kind of, it's the kind of thing that, you know, becomes very... You know, because they won is like a huge for deal. Sure, like, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. But, but I think it, it became like a yeah a significant kind of like ideological victory, isn't it? Um, I think needed after like Constantinople and kind of that kind of loss of Christianity in the region, right? Because uh, obviously, you know, even the Balkans and stuff was was still like an Orthodox Christian region, which was then kind of you know Bosnia, for example, converted to Islam. Same with Albania, right? Which yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Obviously, one one of the main reasons for that, right, is to get out of um, having their their children taken to be to become yeah. janitories, right? Um, obviously, you know, Christian communities do still exist. You know, there there are, yeah, there are yeah, far definitely. more um, far more Christians in the Ottoman Empire than there are Muslims in in, in any European uh, country at the time. <laughs> um, you know, um, yeah. So it's it's it, I, I always think it's interesting how. Um, you know, particularly uh, Europe, Europe of the time views um, the Ottoman Empire as this, um, this almost kind of like totemic, like fully Islamic place. Mm. And obviously, that's very easy in any kind of like othering, right? You just want to portray it as a, a blanket, like concrete thing, like with no nuance, right? Um, but it's more complicated than that. Like, obviously, there's yeah. also like fairly large Jewish communities as well, particularly after the um, uh, the expulsion of uh, Jewish people from uh, Spain. Mm. Uh, you know, a lot of them go to Morocco, North Africa, and then obviously some as well go to uh, the Ottoman Empire as well. Right? Well, they're, they're, less, they're not persecuted as much. Um, right? um, so, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a weird kind of... Um, it's not, yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird kind of view... That European powers have. I mean, it makes sense for their own interest, of course, like mm-hmm. of the Ottoman Empire, but um, it's not not necessarily as black and white. Definitely, yeah. but I mean, the, the knock-on yeah. effects of the, the divide between the Austro-Hungarians and the Ottomans, right? Especially in the Balkans, it's like yeah. pretty much prevalent to this day that the the national entities of, let's say, Cro- Croats versus Serbs, where Croats were 
always Austro-Hungarian uh, Catholics, right? Versus Serbs who were, um, you know, under Ottoman rule, um, Orthodox Christian, but they were under yeah. Ottoman kind of suzerainty. Like, it's, mm. uh, if, uh, well, I think Bosnia is a better example as well with Ottoman kind of um, Muslim rule. Um, yeah. It's still a fundamental kind of characteristic, significant yeah, difference. Of you know, course. Crazy. Um, of course, you know. I mean, that was, that was one of your points at the beginning, wasn't it, Jonas, about how, um, you know, obviously, you know, these things that, uh, that, you know, these imperial designs from uh, hundreds of years ago, like, still have very real effects on, on the, the modern world, right? Um, yeah. And, yeah. And in terms of, like, Ottoman, like, expansion, would you say that that yeah. was sort of, like, the first moment in what could arguably be, you know, the start of the decline of the empire? Because when you think of, like, the Ottoman story up until that moment, it's one of continue expansion you know starting from anatolia and into the Pretty european much, yeah. heartland and whatnot so mm. would you say that's sort of like the turning point where things start to go relatively downhill because like the byzantine empire you know yeah. there is still that debate among historians as you know what are the various factors which led to the kind of the ottoman empire and which was more important but would you say in terms of like you know a turning point was that like the moment that sort of starts the long decline as well yeah, I mean, so so from my understanding, right, like um, the the siege of, so I, I think it's actually the second siege of Vienna. Um, mm. It is, um, you know, in, in 1683, it is, there's, there seems, I mean, from my understanding, there's more consensus that that is the beginning of the decline um, in Ottoman history uh, compared to the Battle of Manzikert, um in Byzantine history. Um, I'll just say as well, so it was led by um, this Grand Vizier, um, Kala Mustafa Pasha um, and there's like a common kind of series of jokes or like it's like a common kind of I don't know it's, it's almost kind of a little bit like mother-in-law jokes like you know there's a lot of them um, <laughs> about viziers um, you know in throughout Middle Eastern history right where like uh, they're always viewed to be corrupt um, or like incompetent or you know and, and uh, you know for our listeners at home like you know a vizier is basically like um it's, it's similar to like a prime minister position. Mm. Um, it's he, he's the most important advisor to the sultan, um, but generally, they, <laughs> they 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 tend to kind of be in it for their own ends, right? As as you would expect, you know, <laughs> um, basically. So so he leads this attack, and his his defeat results in his execution um, as well after this. Uh, so that he's he's one um, of the, the very bad is poor chap. You know, the stakes are high, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Poor chap. Yeah, pretty, pretty much, but it was it was a pretty big disaster. So, and obviously, as you yeah. said, you know, after, after years of expansion, this is the guy that that gives you the defeat. You're going to be like, yeah. oh, it must be his fault, surely, right? Like, um, <laughs> yeah. like you know, it, may, it makes sense psychologically. Um, yeah. So, uh, also as well. So during this period. Um, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of uh, looking at how economic factors play a huge role in uh, in decline um, or or success even, <laughs> um, and we'll see that especially later on in the 19th century. Um, but you know, so for um, you know, basically all of uh, European history uh, from the time of the Romans until uh, the discovery of the Americas and um, the Portuguese rounding of the Cape of Good Hope in uh, 1488, um, Europe has had to get its its goods from Asia, its spices, its silk, uh, its high value luxury goods, basically, 
um, through the Middle East, right? And uh, through, Ana through Anatolia. Uh, Constantinople is obviously perfectly placed to be the kind of the hub of that trade, like in between, on the Bosphorus, between um, Europe and Asia. Um, you literally have to go through Constantinople to do the trade that way. Uh, you have to pay customs tax there pretty much. It's pretty hard not to. Um, but after the Portuguese round the Cape of Good Hope, they can go straight to um, to India, then go straight to China. Um, you know, they can trade directly. They don't need the middleman anymore. Um, and uh, so that's that's factor one. So that limits the, mm. the customs duties that come in. And then also as well, um, with the, uh, the advent of... Um, uh, the colonization of the Americas by the Spanish and the Portuguese, and um, you know later by the um, the English, then the British, uh, the French, and you know basically everyone uh, in in Western Europe. Um, what that does as well is that um, the Ottoman Empire is a is a big producer of um, the kinds of goods that are then produced in large quantities, um, you know, through slave labor in the in the Caribbean and also in the, in South America. So, for instance, sugar. Uh, is a is a big one. There's there's huge sugar um, uh, plantations uh, in um, uh, the Middle East. Uh, also cotton as well. Um, both of these things come from um, the Indian subcontinent or the Indies, um, but then are uh, you know then produced in the Middle East um, mm -hmm. for not only the domestic market but also again like for the European market. Um, so that that can't that can't really compete. Um, or it's it's more expensive. It becomes more expensive than um, than European um, controlled sugar and um, cotton plantations in the, in the New World. Um, you know, because obviously they have to pay more customs duty to get it from um, the, Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire. Right. So that that falls apart to some extent, and um, then leads to you know once those collapse, you get them get more subsistence farming. Um, which leads to basically you're removing people from the cash economy, basically. Um, so that's that's pretty bad uh, in terms of economics. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's the, pretty bad. The reliance uh, on you is like diminished, isn't it? I mean, your your like power. Yeah, like, yeah. So so, yeah. so you go from being pretty much the biggest economic power in Europe to uh, to being Spain being the biggest economic power in Europe, basically, and then. You know, and you and you see that as well with uh, you know, when we talked about the uh, the battles of, with uh, Barbarossa in the 16th century. You know, that's during the uh, the Spanish um, Siècle de Oro. You know, the, the century of gold, where they have these huge uh, silver mines uh, in Bolivia, uh, in uh, Potosi, where they are, the the whole mountain is described as being entirely of silver. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the 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 city is still there, and it's like incredibly lavish. But it's about like three thousand, um, two thousand or three thousand meters up, like from sea level. Like it's insanely high up, um, but with these like amazing houses and stuff. Like it's amazing, like um, really be lavish, Kenyan architecture. Uh, but obviously built on um, through the efforts of um, particularly native uh, Native American um, labor uh, to farm, you know, to to mine this silver. Uh, you know, with incredibly short life expectancies, like measured in days rather than, than months or, or years. You know, so it's, it's incredibly brutal. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they get huge volumes of, of silver. They can trade the silver directly with uh, with China and India um, because obviously, you know, as a European merchant, I find, I mean, this is like something I find incredibly funny. Like, um, 
um, throughout the the history of uh, of trade between Europe and Asia, where you know, so the first English ship to arrive in India, um, they have they, all they have in the hold is wool, woolen coats, right? So they 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 turn up uh, in India with these woolen coats, and they're like, yeah, like do you want to trade your silk for our woolen coats, right? And obviously, it's, it's India, right? Like it's if they arrive in summer, it's going to be like 40 degrees. <laughs> like there's, there's no way they want your woolen coats, right? And, and also, even if they did, like they, they have better wool as well. <laughs> so, there's, there's no way, like, you know, that, that, like anyone's going to want that, right? Um, yeah, so it's, it's just not going to happen. So they, therefore, they have to trade in precious metals. Um, yeah, so, okay, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and... Uh, not to dwell too much. <laughs> no, 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 I'm enjoying it. Cool, cool, cool. All right. So then um, you've got the, uh, yeah. So also, also, so from this period, you know, as we were talking about the, the seizure of Vienna, 1683 until uh, 1827. Uh, so that's generally viewed by most historians as, as what's referred to as the stagnation period of the Ottoman Empire. Um, however, like, uh, you know, from, from a Western um, from well, from from a from a European uh, view, um, it does stagnate in a sense because it doesn't advance further into Europe. But however, mm. it does advance further into the Middle East. So, for instance, uh, the Ottomans retake uh, Iraq from um, the Safavids, um, you know, being the Persian dynasty uh, in what's then the Empire of Persia, um, and you know, take control of that. Um, you know, Iraq historically is a, is a huge agricultural base, uh, similar to Egypt. Uh, you know, lots and lots of productive land. Mm. Um, you can have big agricultural surpluses. Um, to like to like support like growing yeah. population as well, isn't it? That's yeah, ex- 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 exactly right. And also, like the land is very fertile, like similar to um, yeah. you know, like uh, the the Punjab in in North India, right? Like um, the land is incredibly fertile. You don't need you need kind of less people to to run the land as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, also, um, there's lots of rice cultivation in Iraq, and uh, rice is a very productive crop. Um, you know, you can you don't mm. need so many people. It produces a lot of calories uh, per square meter uh, of farmland. Um, so there's lots of food to go around, and also that key, like the most important thing, is that means there's less people needed to actually run the farm and mm. uh, actually make the calories <laughs> for yeah. other people to consume, which means they can do other things. Yeah, or they can produce more, yeah. right? Per, yeah, per yeah. not only the, not only can they produce more, but also they can produce more for people that aren't doing it, which means they can do other things. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They can yeah. do things like uh, make make furniture, or um, you know, or um, you know, be like be in the cash economy, basically. Yeah, everyone wins. I mean, that's great. Like, <laughs> definitely. Pretty, pretty much, yeah. Um, so yeah, so Europe doesn't really have that until the potato, which is which is um, even more productive. <laughs> <laughs> the way is, you said that was so like, savage. The way you were like, really? oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, so, so for instance, like, um, like wheat, wheat is not very productive in terms of per per square meter. Right? Like, um, mm, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I'm very into this kind of thing, right? So, so like, this this kind of like, like economic like square footage, like how much can you produce in this area, like over how much time, <laughs> um, how many does that need, like. This kind of thing, um, yeah, I, I get uh, really into that. So, <laughs> so, 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 do stop me if I if I open dots. No, no. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, so basically, what I'm saying there is that you know the stagnation period, um, what's what's normally referred to as that period, um, isn't isn't really a stagnation period. Um, 
in a holistic mm. sense, basically, uh, yeah. because of the Middle Eastern expansion, right? Um, yeah. So then you've uh, you've also got the um, so what happens as well? So this this happens actually from the 16th century is the what's referred to as capitulations, right? So normally in international legal language, that means something. I mean, uh, if anyone wants to correct me, <laughs> of course, please chime in. But but <laughs> but um, look, my understanding of a capitulation is, you know, it's it's almost like I'm submitting yeah. to to your demands, basically. Right? That's my understanding of, of that word in in modern English. Um, but what it means in the sense, in this sense, is very similar to what you were saying about uh, where Venetians were given exclusive trading rights in in the Byzantine Empire. Uh, what this means is um, that uh, so, okay, so say for instance, Jonas, you you get a uh, capitulation right in the Ottoman Empire. Um, it means you're exempt exempt from local prosecution. So I don't know, maybe you like slap someone really hard, <laughs> like you, you literally, you literally can't be prosecuted. Right? I mean, that's like, <laughs> that's, that's pretty weird. And then, um, also taxation. So you can't be taxed at all. Um, you can't be conscripted. Right. I mean, you, you presume that would be obvious. They would realize you're not Turkish. Um, and then be like, oh, okay. Like maybe, maybe you're okay. But, but what it means as well is like, you're <laughs> like like your your ship for instance right as well like your trading ship um <laughs> wouldn't be conscripted so like for war or anything so say you've got like a fleet of five ships and you're trading from constantinople to um to france for instance right um it's not going to be press ganged into yeah. the war effort. <laughs> um yeah also as well like uh you can't be searched mm. so there's, there's a big thing about violation of you as a person uh, and how how that can't happen basically so it, what it means is that uh so say you Jonas are a French trader it means that uh, I as a uh Ottoman trader uh there is no way I can compete with you at all right because uh you're free from taxation you don't have to pay any tax at all um you can't you know literally if you uh like slap me in the face I I will, if I take that to court, um, you can't be prosecuted at all. <laughs> like, like uh, if you, um, I mean, it's not quite as bad as if you nick my stuff, but like, it's it's almost that bad, right? Like, like you literally cannot be prosecuted. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just say again, this is this is by local laws, not by, not by uh, like, Im- imperial laws. Um, uh, you're not ta- yeah. So and and also as well, like uh, you can't be searched and your ships can't be conscripted. Uh, and your the people that work for you, um, if they are uh, say also French, for instance, they can't be conscripted, right? Um, so whereas, for instance, say uh, I don't know, say the Sultan needs my my uh, my workers for the siege of Vienna in the 1683, they're going to be conscripted, right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I'm at a huge disadvantage, right? As as uh, as a hypothetical Ooh. Ottoman merchant, right? Um, so, so why did I do that, right? I mean, because because that surely doesn't make much sense. Um, the reason why, basically, is to encourage Western trade. It's similar to what we now have in uh, Britain. There's there's a lot of talk about um, free ports, for instance, right? Um, you mm-hmm. know, for like big multinationals, um, yeah. where they don't. Sure, okay, they'll still be subject to prosecution, um, 
but they'll be exempt from most taxation. <laughs> so um, so it's, it's to give an a advantage to foreign direct investment. So you could say in one way, it's it's quite a um, um, it's quite a far-reaching preemptive policy. In a lot of ways, it's very similar to <laughs> very similar to, to free ports <laughs> in, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, especially being done for trade. You know, um, but it doesn't work out too well uh, over over the course of Ottoman history. Um, so. In particular, so that, that takes us to about the 1740s, where France was at the was the number one country for capitulation. So they had the most capitulations of any country. Um, but these go all the way into the 19th century. So Brazil has a capitulation in the 1850s, for instance, um, the Empire of Brazil. Um, you know, all all sorts of uh, of countries in the Americas and, and in Europe. Um, uh, yeah. So then. So a big a big thing that really throws uh, like a spanner in the already not doing too well works is um, <laughs> so Napoleon Napoleon invades Egypt right which is which is pretty crazy so, uh, <laughs> so as as a policy of the um, the uh, government of the the first French Republic um, Napoleon uh, by at that time a general um, invades Egypt uh, in an effort to link up with Tipu Sultan in uh, in India. Uh, who is fighting against the British East India Company? So the idea is he'll take over Egypt, use it as a, then use it as a base to sail his ships um, down the Red Sea through the Indian Ocean to meet up with Tipu Sultan and um, assist the, the local um, Indian armies against the British East India Company in an effort to stymie British colonization of um, of India. Um, so what happens then, right? Is uh, because Egypt is a, a nominal part of the of the ottoman empire although it's, it's kind of like a it's a kind of a, a quasi part of it right because it's under the real control of the uh, the mamelukes um who again leading on to this uh, this tradition of um, of slave soldiers um mamelukes tend to be from uh, the caucasus uh who were then enslaved uh, caucasian uh by caucasian i mean from the caucasus um the, the people who are um you know, then uh, converted to Islam uh, and uh, served as uh, soldiers and bureaucrats and uh, diplomats, but basically run the Egyptian government. Mm. Uh, so the successors to uh, a lot of the Mameluk um, rulers are often not necessarily related to them, uh, but are just other Mameluks that have managed to reach the top of this, of this uh, kind of quite... Uh, interesting system, um, <laughs> yeah. So, so um, yeah. So, so he what he does is uh, on a on a military level, um, he deploys the use of uh, infantry squares quite a lot. Um, the Mamluks uh, mostly use cavalry, um, and what that you know, an infantry square uh, in the nineteenth century. Basically, what happens is you you form a square with a with a unit of infantry. They've all got their bayonets on their rifles. Sorry, on the, on their muskets even. Um, and they present them outwards so that the horses, if they were to charge them, become scared by all the, the sharp points. Uh, and also they can fire the guns as well. Um, and you keep the, the precious stuff that can't fire back in the middle of the square. So say, for example, um, the food they're traveling with or the ammunition they're traveling with, the gunpowder, etc. Um, yeah, so it's, it's pretty effective anti-cavalry um, defense, really. Uh, so there's a lot of battles in Egypt where 
Um, Napoleon's um, troops don't lose that many men in actual battles, um, but lose a fair amount to um, to certain diseases, for instance, or uh, yeah, big time, uh, yeah, or to uh, dehydration as well. Yeah, because they're they're not used to fighting in um, the Egyptian desert, which can get up to you know forty five degrees in summer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Obviously, you know, France can get pretty hot as well. You know, like particularly southern France can get to, you know, like 35 these days. I guess this is kind of like just about pre global warming, but, but still, <laughs> like, it's still pretty hot. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So then uh, he then advances up uh, after taking Cairo um, and, uh, you know, kind of literally taking over in a lot of ways, you know, um, not only in a military way, but also. Um, he makes a point of going to um, the great university in Cairo uh, and kind of like trying to debate with the people there. Um, and uh, he makes a, a kind of a, it's, it's quite an interesting, uh, it's, it's referenced a lot in, in Edward Said's uh, book Orientism where he makes a kind of a play to um, present himself as uh, as being amicable towards um, Middle Eastern traditions. Uh, so he makes this point of saying that he never drinks wine, even though he clearly does, <laughs> like uh, all, all, the, all these kind of things. Um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, some Islamic scholars are viewing uh, alcohol as uh, haram. Um, and so he, he makes a play in that sense, right? Um, so it's almost, it's an ironic thing where he, to, to stop the, or to, to stop the British colonization of India, he's trying to effectively colonize Egypt. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but then he moves up through Palestine and then goes to Accra, um, A-C-R-E. Uh, and uh, there is defeated by the Ottomans, actually. So the Ottomans are, uh, are involved in, well, you know, they're, they're the main driver behind um, one of three major um, defeats in battle of Napoleon. Uh, yeah, which is which is pretty impressive, I would say. Definitely, I mean, like yeah. <laughs> he has like an illustrious military career, and like to to lose in well, Accra or like Acre as a pilot mentioned as well, which is interesting because yeah, clearly wrong, isn't it? Too, yeah. To be called that, but um, yeah, no, very interesting career, isn't it? it that's, that's like his early campaign through the Egyptian campaign, which is like uh, very formative, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah, military campaigns. Yeah, it's it's incredibly formative, you know. So he has all these designs to um, become the next Alexander the Great, and uh, mm. you know, like take uh, the whole of the Middle East up up into India. Um, it's so funny though; he but, just leaves. He just like at one point he just leaves, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, he he literally leaves and leaves everyone behind. Yeah, uh, which is probably <laughs> probably like I would say the the least or one of the least uh, noble things or least virtuous things. Um, he does that no one can really argue about um yeah it's, yeah, it's not yeah. in contemporary france uh that he did that for instance. <laughs> um yeah so af after that kind of cataclysmic event which uh which is the british as well helping the ottomans quite a lot uh from their base in cyprus um to uh defeat napoleon um mostly under this guy called sir Sidney smith um who uh, is very, very full of himself, and then also Nelson as well. <laughs> uh, so after that, the uh, the Ottomans don't aren't really able to assert direct control of Egypt for quite a long time. And then the Mamluks kind of start to assert more 
um, independence, uh, although they, they kind of pretend they're still part of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and that's particularly under this uh, this guy called uh, Muhammad Ali Pasha, who is actually Albanian. Oh. Um, yeah, but he's uh, an Albanian Mameluk, so um, it's similar to how the Janissaries uh, were often uh, Albanian or um, you know, from various parts of the Balkans. Muhammad Ali Pasha is the same. Um, yeah, and so his his dynasty, uh, they what they do is, you know, not only do they kind of separate in all but name from the Ottoman Empire, they also bring in a lot of European uh, and particularly French um, mil military people to kind of reform the army. Uh, you know, because they've seen the, for instance, the infantry square against Mamluk cavalry uh, quite in quite dramatically, um, they don't want to copy that, right? Um, so he brings in a lot of um, French uh, you know, generals and uh, military instructors. And then what ends up happening is these, the Egyptian army becomes more effective man for man than the, the Ottoman army in general. Uh, so he's able to then take large parts of the Middle East, uh, Palestine, um, Syria, um, Damascus, you know, um, and then even up to the, the borders of um, what is now modern Turkey. Pretty much, um, because because his army is more effective, basically. You know, so mm. for instance, he's he's using the the Napoleonic tactic of uh, mobile artillery, um, or uh, he's using uh, you know like uh, all fully drilled line infantry. Um, yeah, with like yeah, it's it's it's, it's, it's pretty impressive. Um, yeah, and then also that that kind of leads to the um, well. Not, not him so much, but more, more the kind of this separation from the Ottomans leads to the kind of informal British kind of pseudo-colonization of Egypt. They become increasingly involved in, uh, in Egyptian affairs. Um, yeah, which kind of it separates that as an income base for the Ottomans. And, you know, throughout most of human history, uh, Egypt has been an incredibly productive piece of, la uh, piece of uh, land. You know, it's... Um, uh, agriculturally, it's incredibly productive. Um, you know, the amount of food you can make, the amount of, uh, say, for example, you know, cash crops you can you can farm, cotton, sugar. Um, now at this point as well, tobacco. Um, you know, lots and lots of cash crops um, that that you can you can uh, make and and still have more than you know what to do with in terms of actually crops that you need to eat. Um, yeah, so also as well, like, you know, throughout Ottoman history, you've got these huge wars with Russia that happen all the time, are incredibly draining on the um, Ottoman um, uh, supplies, uh, money, and, and people as well. Like, huge, huge amounts of people die in these wars. Um, and a real kind of drain on both Russia and the Ottomans. Um, but the, the Ottomans aren't really as able to bounce back as much. Uh, from it at all um yeah so that leads us into uh i mean i'll talk a little bit about the tanzimat reforms as well so that that's where the um the ottoman sultans try to kind of emulate the um the reforms of uh muhammad ali pasha in egypt they try to kind of copy that and for instance they try to get rid of the janissaries so what what's happened here is um so, so sorry right yeah what time are we talking now like what what year are we... so, so now we're now we're talking about 1827 right 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 right, right. yeah so, so the uh, you know, so this is after Napoleon's invasion. Is after uh, Muhammad Ali Pasha in Egypt has kind of taken over, and he started to modern. Well, he, he started to westernize um, mm. the uh, Egyptian army. 
um, you know, obviously at this point, contemporarily in history, um, you know, the term westernize and modernize um, more or less is used interchangeably. Yeah. We also see this in Japan um, in the late 19th century. Yeah, definitely. Um, the, terms are, the terms are used interchangeably. Um, yeah, so yeah, so he, he tried, so yeah, various Ottoman sultans uh, try to enact reforms. So one thing is to get rid of the Janissaries because uh, they have become um, quite a kind of, they're still fairly effective, but they're very corrupt. <laughs> right? uh, for instance, like they, they have a lot of, uh, there's a lot of weird things going on. They're not necessarily taken um, from slave, um, slave populations anymore. They're not taken from, um, well, they used to be taken from, they're, they're more, it's more from uh, the, uh, the peasant farmers of Anatolia that they're starting to come from. Um, so the, the whole kind of original design you know, this thing about having very long periods of training doesn't necessarily apply anymore. Right. Uh, right. The equipment, they're quite slow to um, take up new equipment. So, uh, for instance, bayonets, they're, they're not, you know, it's, it takes quite a while for them to take on bayonets. Um, they have quite, um, the uniforms don't necessarily uh, fit with uh, concepts of concealment, you know, which, um, for instance, <laughs> camouflage, you know, the, the first, so for instance, like a, you know, already in the um, the late 18th century, uh, the British Army has what's referred to as the Green Jackets, which is the first, what's seen as like one of the first kind of uh, ways to to camouflage uh, someone by you know, giving them a green jacket and putting them in a wood. Basically, um, was you know the the Janissaries tend to have very flamboyant um, uniforms, you know, which aren't as uh, suited to more accurate. Um, firearms yeah. you, know, you can see them quite easily you can shoot them that's kind of it yeah <laughs> they're quite easy to ambush um yeah so they're they're uh, also as well they're a huge political force within the ottoman empire so uh to, to enact any real change you need to curtail their power right and therefore you need to kind of break them and uh, there's numerous attempts to do this and it involves a lot of massacres of, of the genitories actually um yeah and then um you know, there's various attempts to create uh, what's referred to as a, um, I'm going to butcher the Turkish here, but uh, what's referred to as a Nizam Isidi, uh, which is uh, literally means new model army. Um, um, it's more, again, based on um, this Napoleonic concept of uh, line infantry and mobile artillery, similar to what uh, Muhammad Ali Pasha is doing in Egypt. Um, yeah, so there's there's a lot of uh, historians that, that, for instance, will say that um, you know, they're, they're trying to copy European ideals, uh, but what's often missed is that they're, what they're doing is they're copying it uh, by proxy from a, from Egypt in particular, right? So it's it's not quite as, as straightforward as that. Right, um, right. Huh? Oh, no, I was just, I was going like, right, right. <laughs> oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> you mentioned the sort of like the, sort of the Christian make of the Janissaries and how that played a role in terms of, yeah. You know, there's military supremacy for a long time. I guess sticking on that subject, like how much would you say the sort of multi-ethnic nature of the Ottoman yeah. Empire also played a role in its demise as well? Because it's often been said that like, you know, um nationalism, particularly in that eighteen hundred period, yeah. played like a huge role in terms of like, you know, galvanizing anti-Ottoman sentiment from a lot of its Christian subjects. So like sure, sure. On, on that broadly, yeah. do you think how how much value would you put that as like one of the key drivers of like you know the decline of the Ottoman Empire coming into that 1800 period. 
that, that's a good mm. point. I mean, um, so obviously for, with the Austrians, right, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, that's that's seen as like a uh, one of the main reasons they they declined, right? Um, it's because of all their constituent groups, then kind of had national national uh, movements, right? Um, I mean, with with the Ottomans, right? So on a population basis, the um, the Turkified population is is quite large. Uh, the Greek population is fairly large. Um, you've also got the Armenians, the Assyrians. Um, you've got the uh, you've got the Arabs as well, obviously. Um, and then, kind of by proxy, you've got the Egyptians. Like, so obviously, this is a pre. Um, it's a pre kind of Arab nationalist phase. So, for instance, people in Egypt don't necessarily view themselves as Arab at this point, um, and other parts of Africa don't necessarily view themselves as being as being um, Arab or uh, you know the, the identity is more fractured than it is now, for instance. Um, yeah, but I, I mean, my understanding, uh, you know, particularly as, uh, as someone of, uh, of, of Arab heritage, is, is that uh, what happens is that the Ottomans kind of, they have more of a uh, Turkish nationalism to begin with um, than it coming from other constituent groups. Obviously, Serbian, Serbian nationalism, for instance, is very, very important. Um, in the decline of the of the Ottoman Empire, particularly in the Balkans, obviously, right? Yeah, um, yeah, Greek, yeah. National, Greek nationalism is very, very important um, as well, right? So the the Greek um, um, wars of independence in the uh, the early nineteenth century, mm. um, yeah. So the, the more European parts of um, of the Ottoman Empire are are more influenced by nationalism, right? You know, originally coming from France, basically. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, and as well, you know, you had uh, French controlled, uh, uh, parts of Dalmatia as well, which is, it is in the Balkans, right? <laughs> so, yeah. 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 So it's the easy to ideas. You know, the, the language is fairly similar, um, to, um, to other Slavic Balkan languages. Right. So, um, to translate the idea is not that difficult. Um, yeah. but however, it, it takes a little bit longer to reach, um, the Ottoman, other the non-Turkic Ottoman populations in Asia, uh, for instance, uh, but it's it's definitely there. But it's you know they, these 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 kind of things you see often with nationalism, right? Where there's like uh, there's like a club where people will like talk about nationalism, or um, you have these things where like people will like um, uh, do huge histories of like a particular people. That's that's a bit later in the um, the Asian parts of the Ottoman Empire. But yeah, no, there's de- de- definitely, definitely, uh, yeah, valid because because uh, I, I totally missed the Greek wars of independence actually, which are, which are very important. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, on the on the topic of nationalism, so that, now I'm going to talk about um, the Young Turk movement, uh, you know, which kind of forms in the 1880s, um, and it's preceded by what's referred to as the Young Ottoman movement, um, or the the uh, Ottoman Ottomanism movement. Right, where the idea is, is that they're going to try and create a national identity from the Ottoman Empire, so from collating these various uh, national identities, or I guess they don't view them in that way, but from these um, these identities that aren't quite the same, but obviously through hundreds of years of um, mutual um, uh, control, I guess. So you know, so you've had people who are sure Serbian, but they have been controlled for more or less the same amount of time. As someone who is uh, an Iraqi Kurdish person or an Iraqi Arab person, right? Um, so the idea is is to kind of form a, a whole holistic identity from that. 
uh, that doesn't really take off. Um, I've tried to find research uh, and papers as to why that's the case. It's quite hard to find. Um, so I haven't really got a good answer for you as to why that doesn't happen. Um, that is quite uh, fairly quickly, within about 10 years, replaced by the, um, the Young Turk movement, uh, which I, I feel like a lot of people would have probably heard of. Um, where basically the idea is, is that um, in a very kind of conventional nationalistic sense, um, you know, so Turkish people are the, there's a similar, say for example, in the British Empire, right, where uh, British people or, you know, English people really, uh, in, in the concept of the, of the British Empire, are viewed as the, the top kind of nation right, in that empire. And then you have an order of nations below that, right, that go in almost like a list, right, and that's, 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 uh, very much uh, influenced by concepts of uh, social Darwinism uh, and you know, scientific racism that really appears in this period in the late 19th century um, where you know, uh, different groups of people are, are ordered in that way. Um, so that takes root in the Ottoman Empire. There's a lot of British influence in the Ottoman Empire at this time. Um, you know, Britain is the, uh, the, the foremost uh, proponent of these ideas at this time. Uh, as well um yeah so obviously with that views um turkish people turkish you know so turkish speaking people um at the top um and then a, this is descending order below um yeah and obviously what that does right is it alienates people right? so, so so very very similar to uh the british empire right so you know so you say i don't know you turn up in kenya and then you immediately disrespect people and um like uh you know, view them as lesser than yourself, right? I mean, that's that clearly is going to lead to animosity, right? Um, like it's, it seems like a very obvious, like human <laughs> uh, piece of human psychology, right? Or um, uh, yeah, it's just not going to it's just not going to end well. So after after these hundreds of years of um, of you know of being controlled of these areas, just suddenly then enact this policy in the Ottoman Empire um, leads to animosity. So. Uh, You've got um, the uh, so first of all, all right. So so they 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 form the Young Turks. They form in the eighteen eighties. Uh, then they eventually take power in the, in nineteen oh eight. Right. So fairly fairly late, right? So the Ottoman Empire has only really got about ten years to go at mm. this point. Uh, but already the, the the ideas have still been there. You know, so informally, they've been enacted by certain governors of certain regions. Uh, so, for instance, um, the governors in the Balkans, the governors in the, the Hejaz in, uh, in uh, Iraq and then um, uh, in Syria and uh, Lebanon. I'll, I'll just say as well, because it's not normally a term used these days, but the, uh, the Hejaz is the, um, uh, the area of what is now Saudi Arabia on the uh, western coast um, that uh, covers uh, Jeddah, Mecca, Medina uh, and Taif as well. Um, and so, so, like you know, i.e., I, some of the holy spaces in uh, in uh, Islam, um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, there's also animosity. There's things like you know, you have Ottoman governors turning up. They don't speak Arabic. They don't speak Serbian. Um, you know, they, people have to learn. You know, to communicate with the Ottomans, they have to learn the the uh, Turkish Turkish language. That wasn't always the case. Um, they tend to be. You know, there's there's lots of anecdotes about people being humiliated. Um, in very very simple kind of everyday interactions, um, so there's there's really there's it's kind of 
it's yeah I've, I've never i've never seen i'm sure it exists but i've never seen a, a good study on um how this change how quickly this change happened mm. uh, my impression it happened fairly quickly uh, after after this group received more and more power you know um from being formed in the 1880s to being in charge of the government what, uh, in 28 like what were their policies what, what were they like symbolizing or what was their kind of driving yeah, so it's, so so the so there's different uh different levels of nationalism obviously but like uh but basically to have you know as i was saying to have a uh empire dominated by um uh turkish speaking people um at the top and then for every everyone else to be kind of a more kind of subject um rather than being uh, more this kind of um mix and to kind of forge a um an, an imperial identity based on the empire um and it being kind of co vaguely co-equal in name, right? Obviously, economically, it's never going to be equal yeah. because the center of power is is, is Constantinople, um, right? But at least at least socially, um, for it to to be equal um, on a social level, you know, I'm say so, so for example, you know, you you as a uh, for example a uh, say a Croatian person or or a, sorry a a Serbian person, um, I'm not going to be treated necessarily differently based on who you are. Uh, from a um, a Turkish person or an Armenian person, for instance, right? Um, yeah, so it's uh, kind of like yeah, a egalitarian kind of nationalism. It's, uh... it's so so o o Ottomanism is that's the idea behind Ottomanism, more or less. Uh, but the but also is also kind of meld it together and kind of create a new identity. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, it doesn't last very long, and then you end up with this this um, this kind of. Uh, yeah, that's that's when you end up with the Young Turk movement. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll talk a because it is it is quite confusing to be fair. So, um, <laughs> cool, cool. Um, yeah. So, and then you have uh, this guy who takes power, uh, one of many in 1908, called Enver Pasha, who is, I mean, from history, I've I, that I've found is probably one of the most incompetent people I've ever I've ever found. <laughs> Uh, he's involved in, in, in insane number of um, things that go wrong, um, and also he's uh, he's uh, majorly involved in um, the uh, Armenian genocide as well. Uh, so he's he's an all around bad guy um, for sure. Um, yeah, he's yeah. So so what he does is um, um, you know he. He becomes, you know, the, the Young Turks become the lead advisors to the, the Ottoman Sultan uh, in 1908. Um, so, and then the Balkan Wars begin in um, 1913. Jonas, correct me if I'm wrong. Is that correct? Is it 1913 or 1912? So the Balkan War starts in 1912 and ends in 1913, yeah. That's so it's like that's around it. a nine-month period. Uh, oh, so it's literally, so there's like, there's two wars in nine months. Yeah. <laughs> that's insane. Yeah, it's just crazy that's to think nice. about just how many countries were involved in the region as well. That's crazy. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I guess from that though, you can see why they uh, they thought World War One would be quick after that. Like, yeah, <laughs> two wars in nine months. You can see why they thought that. Yeah, but it's not quick. <laughs> the good old Schlieffen plan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so Enver Pasha is involved in that. Uh, obviously, that goes very, very wrong. Um, for the Ottomans, they lose a huge amount of land. Uh, they're only really left with uh, what's now referred to as Romalia um, in what is now Turkey. 
uh, Romania meaning um, Rum meaning Roman. Uh, so you know that's the area around Istanbul, basically. Um, so that's that's pretty bad from the from the extent that they had all the way to Vienna, more or less. Um, you know, a couple hundred years earlier to now being Istanbul, what's then the capital, mm. being very close to foreign borders. Um, I mean, they yeah, smashed so it though. In, in the Balkan Wars, I mean, it's like crazy. Like they, they're just like we've had enough of this, and they just <laughs> like declare independence and join pretty, together. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, so I haven't really had time to talk about how, for instance, uh, military modernization and uh, the economic uh, modernization. Uh, why that didn't happen. Uh, but these these concessions I was talking about earlier, uh, just, just to give a very short form uh, version of as to why it didn't happen, is uh, so, you know, so um, if, you, if you can't amass a huge amount of wealth because your foreign competition is too good, like they have too much advantage, basically. Mm, yeah. You can't, amass, you can't amass enough capital um and therefore you can't invest <laughs> right in anything so and and also at the same time um you've got quite a lot of um cheap labor so therefore you don't need to uh, mechanize as much right there's yeah. there's no call for um the hallmarks of 19th century industrialization you know e even though turkey has quite a lot of coal actually um lebanon has lebanon has quite a lot of coal as well uh, relative to its size um, but if you don't have the impetus to require it, uh, because labor is cheap, um, then there's no need, to, there's no need to basically, right. Um, that's, that's a big problem. Yeah. And that, and obviously without coal, you don't have, uh, you're not able to, uh, create steel as, as effectively, but still you're not able to create, um, interchangeable parts as effectively that, that you aren't able to produce weapons as effectively like etc 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 right um yeah pretty pretty much uh so that's that's a big problem and mm. obviously you know if you're a european you know going back to what you were saying earlier Jonas, about this this concept of christendom versus um islam that, that's it's still a factor at this time uh so if you're a, a european power particularly in, the, in western europe which has you know huge industrial potential you know, who are you more likely to supply uh, arms to, right? Are you the Ottomans or or to these newly independent um, countries, which are nominally Christian, right? Um, you know, yeah, it's, it's probably going to be the ones that are Christian, right? Um, yeah. And you think a lot of that also yeah. came to characterise the, the, the Ottoman Empire's later relationship with the sort of Christian subjects because of that whole idea of, like, you know, the Balkan experience and... I, yeah. I, I don't know, was there, was there sort of like a fear around a sort of Christian fifth column that would exist within the Ottoman Empire? True, like, true. I mean, populations um, being a p potential sort of like, you know, pretext for foreign powers yeah. intervening in, in, in the empire. Yeah, I, I guess particularly after the Greek wars of independence, right? Like, um, mm. I mean, that would make, that would be very logical, I think, to um, to kind of think that, um, you know, from, from past experience, uh, you know, of, of their own history. Um yeah, I mean, I, I don't know too much about the suspicion there. Um, yeah, but no, that is that is a that is a very good point that I hadn't actually considered before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. I'm sure there was basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, when you look at, for example, like the involvement of Russia in the sort of Armenian wars and whatnot, yes. it yeah. definitely seems like there was a sort of 
relationship there in terms of Christian mm. sympathy for the yeah. fight of the Christian subjects, you know, in, in the Ottoman Empire. That's a very good point. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, because there's always this, um, I mean, I don't know when they stopped wanting it, actually. I mean, probably with the dawn of the Soviet Union, but there's this continuous Russian thing about um, wanting to take Constantinople from the Ottoman Empire um, mm. you know, because they, as the largest Orthodox power, um, um, you know, li- literally kind of converted by the Byzantine Empire, right? Um, wanting to take Constantinople. Um, I mean, yeah, I think that probably does end actually, probably with the uh, the advent of uh, Lenin, and, <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> but it's, it goes on for a while, like you know, mm. probably, like multiple hundreds of years. Uh, that being a, a feature of Russian foreign policy, third Rome, isn't um, it? Yeah, I think it exists yeah. within Greece as well. I think there's the whole concept of like the Megali idea, or like this idea of like enosis, which is sort of like it's, it's interesting. It's similar towards. It, I think there's a very famous. Greek commentator said that, you know, for thousands of years, like the Jews would say, to, you know, maybe one day we'll end up in Jerusalem, but but apparently yeah. there was a sort of like, you know, similar belief within the Greek community that one day we'd end up back in Constantinople. So yeah, I mean, that, that makes really interesting sense. how that sort of strong feeling towards Constantinople still remains True. to this day on both sides. Yeah, Def- definitely, definitely. I mean, um, you know, we, we see that later with, um, I mean, we definitely don't have time to um, to talk about the um, the post World War One um, conflicts in Turkey, but that's definitely a feature of of uh, some of the the Greco Turkish wars that happened. Yeah. And, um, and looking back and summarizing like everything you've covered on the Ottoman Empire, like yeah. when you think about how, how vast <laughs> the empire was, do you think this yeah, something you said there in terms of like it's it's sort of like the, the the wide nature of the empire do you think there's an yeah. argument that there is a lack of natural cohesion that comes with only an empire that goes from bulgaria on one side all the way yeah. to like the hejaz basically like you know do yeah not the south yeah. maybe doomed from the start in terms of like its natural evolution given the fact that you know in terms, of, in terms of geography um yeah. well i mean you've got a lot of water there right so i mean water through most of the history is quicker than land so um I mean, so say for example, right, you want to carry a message from Bulgaria to the Hejaz. Um, what would you do? You would probably take the Danube, then go into the Black Sea, then go south through the Bosphorus, and then land in Alexandria, then probably travel to um, a port on the Red Sea, and then go south from there. Uh, how long would that take? Um, I'm going to guess about 60 days. Um <laughs> But that would be much quicker than, for instance, if you want to go from the top of France to the bottom of France, like in um, the 18th century, right? Because the roads were terrible, right? <laughs> so, like, you you basically have to cut your your way through, like, forest or like if you've got any kind of wheeled vehicle, like a like a cart or anything, it's going to get broken every like day, pretty much, because the roads are so bad. Um, so that, that's pretty good. I mean. Um, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the standard language is is, uh, is Ottoman Turkish, um, and was it doomed? Um, I don't, I don't think it was, but I think the geography is pretty solid, actually. I mean, there's a few problems where, um, you know, if if you can hold the Caucasus Mountains and kind of defend the Caucasus Mountains against Russia, then that's a pretty solid border. Mm. Um. Mm. um yeah, and then Persia, you've got flatlands to mountains. 
Um, that's that's not too bad a border. Um, and then Arabia as well, like um, that's pretty self-contained in a lot of ways. So, I mean, yeah, ge- geographically, it's not that bad. Mm. Um, yeah, so no, I, I don't think they were doing by, 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 by geopolitics. Yeah. I guess at times they overextend quite a lot. They go north of the Danube. Um, there's the Ottoman uh, con- like um, protectorates of uh, the Crimean Khaganate, for instance, mm. which is quite difficult to defend. Um, yeah, uh, I, guess, I guess my question was sort of like rooted around that sort of idea of like, can empires ever really turn into sort of yeah. nation states, mo- modern, you know, multi-ethnic, maybe multilingual yeah. federal states? And I think history doesn't seem yeah. very kindly on multi-ethnic true. empires in that sense. You know, you look at Yugoslavia, true, true. you look at true. you know other empires where a multi a diverse population often results in sort of you know nationalist sometimes separation yes. sentiment so yeah it's it, it, it's I, I suppose it's like a what if sort of question but um i do wonder yeah. how much of like you know that yeah ethnic mm. diversity and you know the lack of hom- mm. homogeneity like sort of played a factor I, I mean um yeah i mean like uh probably i would say probably the most successful um country that has a a multi-ethnic, has an, a multi-ethnic empire that now resembles its modern borders. It's probably the Russian Federation. <laughs> I, I was actually like, um, mm. like, um, you know, that's obviously you then have the kind of the, the blip of um, the USSR, um, where a lot of territory is then lost um, from the original empire. But uh, that's, I mean, in its modern borders, it, it very closely resembles, um, you know, the borders of uh, the 19th century in a lot of ways. I think, I think being um, you know, having a contiguous empire helps quite a lot. Mm. Um, you know, the, all the land being connected, right? Um, mm. uh, obviously, with say with the British Empire, right, the fact that it's, I mean, like let let alone the discrimination, right, uh, which obviously does not help at all, right? Um, but um, having these areas, so like you know. You can sell from London to um, Ghana, for instance, right? And then, but then, if you want to like walk, go on land from Ghana north, you're then in French territory, right? Like, it's yeah, it's a it's a bit kind of disjointed, isn't it? Um, yeah, but I'd, I'd say probably Russia or even America actually is is America as well. Is is if uh, if you look at um, you know if if you if you understand the um, or um, understand the wrong word, if, if if you kind of view, yeah, that's a view. If you view the um, the takeover of say the Midwest of America uh, as a colonization, right? Because you're you're colonizing um, uh, like Native American territories, right? Their their culture is very different from your own culture. You are then supplanting their economic systems. You're um, asserting that that your dominant group, i.e. You know, white Europeans are dominant in that system. Um, yeah, that's that's a very successful um, empire, I would say. <laughs> you know, the, the contiguous United States. Right? Yeah, that that still reflects how it looked a um, hundred years ago. Maybe. That's true. Um, obviously, Turkey doesn't. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a good question. Why 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 did Turkey fail? I mean, there are there are definitely people that can disagree with me here, and um, but uh, I 
I would argue that this um, this kind of adoption of Darwinian um, uh, kind of uh, scientific racism and um, uh, this this concept of the order of races uh, that's that happened in this period within the Ottoman Empire was incredibly damaging to uh, the idea of a kind of imperial cohesion, uh, and it, it it kind of it, it left such resentment among uh, you know, what then became the subject populations, right? Uh, so obviously you have the Arab revolt, which is <laughs> which is <laughs> we do not have time to get into because uh, that I, I can do a whole podcast on that, but. Um, yeah, uh, but 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 just to end, I'm just going to end now with um, the uh, so the, the final thing. Don't worry, listener, <laughs> and or Asian or Jonas. <laughs> so so the final thing. So I'm just going to talk about the Ottoman uh, World War One and how they came into it quickly. So basically, up up until from about the 1880s, the Ottomans they couldn't build. You know, ships have to be steel. Uh, they have to be modern. Uh, like. Um, proto uh, dreadnought ships, basically, right? Um, the Ottomans aren't able to build that; they don't have the industrial capacity to build that. Um, so what they do is they order them from Britain. Okay, so they do that for about thirty years. Then, when World War One breaks out, Britain stops delivering it to them, right? Because they need they need them for World War One. So what happens is is the um, the Germans offer to sell them dreadnoughts at that point in uh, in nineteen fourteen. Uh, and um, the Ottomans like, yeah, sure. But what the what, what the um, the, uh, the German Empire does is they sell them the the boats and also the crew as well, <laughs> right? So 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 these two dreadnought ships they they move in they go past the Bosphorus, okay? They're officially bought by the Ottoman Empire uh, under Enver Pasha uh, as the lead young Turk, um, and he. Uh, he then kind of like goes, all right, yeah, great, yeah, we've done the sale, and then these these two boats then go north to to Crimea, and start shelling Russian ports, right? So the Ottoman Empire is officially not part of World War One at this point. Um, they, they then return to uh, Constantinople, and then Enver Pasha gets the Ottoman Sultan to declare war on the, on the <laughs> Russia, uh, France, and Britain, right? Which is, I mean, after losing the Balkan War like a year earlier. It's like, <laughs> I don't. I, I literally don't understand why you would do that. It's, it's insane. Right? Um, he then needs this uh, this campaign into the Caucasus against Russia, um, which I think results in one battle victory. Uh, but I, I think there's something mad, like about three hundred thousand people that die um, through battle and also starvation uh, and um, from cold as well. Um, yeah, and then. Uh, he's he's then involved in uh, after all of his many defeats, um, he's then involved in the uh, as, as you mentioned earlier the Assyrian Armenian uh, genocide, um, and then later on obviously you have you have the Greek um, massacres and genocides that happen um, in um, uh, Western Turkey as well, or what is now Western Turkey. Um, yeah, so I, I mean. That's that's pretty much the decline of the Ottoman Empire, really. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, I mean that. Thank you for that, like, expansive uh, description of it. I mean, like, yeah, there's so much that I didn't know about that period of time that I feel like. Yeah, I've definitely I mean, I, mean I my my notes are literally like one page, so I don't know how I wrote that, how I managed to sleep for that long. <laughs> 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 like, like random things, but yeah. Lovely stuff. 
Um, let's take a super quick break here, and then we can just yes, really wrap up here. Welcome back. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed listening to our account of um, Anatolian empires. <laughs> it has to be said as well it wasn't planned that it would become like a Turkish history oh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's what it's ended up being for sure <laughs> um, yeah but it's uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, you know, the account from the, the the fall of Constantinople in the 13th century with the Latin Empire <laughs> I'll, I'll die on that hill <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, to uh, the second uh, fall of Constantinople uh, in the in fourteen fifty three, and then um, <laughs> finally the third fall in uh, nineteen twenty two. Definitely, I mean, yeah. what a, what a crazy like uh, trip we've gone down, isn't it? Like that's <laughs> it's pretty mad, yeah. I mean, I mean we're basically covered about um, yeah eight hundred years of the same city, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it's uh, various imperial provinces, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> man, the magnificent would be proud, man. Oh, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, I mean, as as we were saying earlier, you know, he was viewed as a very uh, just just a guy. So I'm sure he'd be able to to judge our podcast as being uh, very uh, admirable, which is which is yeah, a nice thing. To have. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's been great having um, you on, Jonas, as well. Uh, it's, been, it's been super fun. Uh, like ha- having on the podcast. Um it's yeah, I mean pleasure to have you as well. You know, you're always welcome back. <laughs> like <laughs> literally like uh yeah, always welcome back. Uh yeah, you've uh the the questions you asked today I, I literally was like, Oh I'm still thinking about like in my subconscious I was like, Oh, I didn't think of that before. <laughs> uh, I think particularly the one you asked about the um the Russian, well, yeah, the Russian involvement in um, uh, particularly, I mean, obviously, there's every, I mean, a lot of people know about Serbia, but then also Bulgaria as well, um, and um, the other Balkan provinces in general, uh, and then kind of like reminding me about the um, uh, the Russian constant obsession with Constantinople as well, <laughs> like, like, yeah, which <laughs> is pretty constant. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, yeah, I thought it was really interesting hearing about um, the the various backstabbing of the Byzantine court. <laughs> Good stuff, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it was a solid episode, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, me too, man. I definitely have enjoyed hearing your accounting of the uh, Ottoman Empire as well. Really enjoyed hearing about how it the ruse it kind of started from the Battle of Vienna into uh, yeah, kind of slow demise. <laughs> A sick yeah. man of Europe, isn't it? It's uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I was gonna say, I mean, like, uh, we, we hear that term a lot these days, don't we? <laughs> I, guess, I yeah. don't know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe it's about another country that's on the, on the periphery of Europe, yeah. <laughs> yeah. increasingly, right? Increasingly, maybe, maybe, yeah, increasingly, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe it's not Ireland as well, yeah, yeah no, maybe, maybe <laughs> metaphorically and uh, physically. <laughs> And there's there's no green in the flag. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, we're talking about Britain here, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, 
yeah so yeah i hope, hope uh, you've enjoyed that listener and um uh yeah hope hope you guys have a good week as well yes indeed thank you so much peace